The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So, Philip, my friend Philip here, who's the head chef of the greatest sushi place on planet Earth, I say to young Jamie, young Jamie, have you had sushi at Sushi Bar ATX yet? And he goes, I don't like fish. Yeah. <laughs> Put that mic in front of your face. What's wrong with that? What is what? What could you not like about fish? Um. Well, I've like I've eaten it. I'm not like afraid to try it all the time. I've worked at restaurants, and you know they've made really great halibut. And, okay. What about fillet of fish sandwiches from McDonald's? Well, no, that's not. How? What the fuck? Those are goddamn delicious. It's like a smell and taste to it that just. I mean, have you have you tried? Fish. I mean, obviously, you know, a fillet of fish sandwich is not going to be, you know, hundred dollar pound Toro, but um, it's still delicious. Fillet of fish is like the best thing McDonald's <laughs> ever figured out. I, no. Listen. <laughs> yes. Listen. I know it's terrible for you. Like every time I eat one, my, I'm, I'm, there's like the brain is saying to the mouth, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" And then the body's like, "Dude," but the mouth's like, "Shut up, bitch." I don't know, man. I'm steak and potatoes from Ohio. Like, it's just. I I enjoy steak and potatoes as well, though. I just. uh, uh, I don't know. Some people just. I always wonder if people just have. Like, if their tongue works different. Like, uh, I have two. My youngest daughter. You've met my kids. Yeah. My youngest loves spicy food. I mean, she can fuck with some really spicy hot sauce. Like, uh, I got this uh, Senor Lechuga. Uh, uh, hot sauce. They sent me a bunch of it. It's awesome stuff. And they sent me some with uh, Reapers. I mean, it's got a fucking kick to it. I'll have it. And uh, I, and she goes, "What's that hot sauce?" And I go, "This one might be too hot for you." She goes, "Let me try." I go, "You serious?" And she's like dipping her finger into this Reaper sauce. She goes, I can handle it. I go, "Wow, she's 11." And That's she's, gnarly. It's gnarly. My 13-year-old will not fuck with it at all. She's like, "Yeah." She 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 barely likes crushed red pepper on pizza. Like, she can't handle that. Yeah, I mean, everyone's a little bit different with the way that they're, you know, like coffee. I hate coffee. That's so odd to me. I think the flavor is disgusting. And I it's it's, you know, I've definitely had that conversation with people before and they're like, "Well, you haven't tried the right coffee." And mm. I've tried everybody's who's suggested that. I just think it tastes disgusting. It tastes do you burnt. not like caffeine, or do you not like? Well, I don't do caffeine. None. My body doesn't doesn't work well with it. What happens when you have caffeine? I just get shaky. Oh, I, I really? think I kind of OD'd on uh, on Red Bulls when I was younger. <laughs> I used to drink like four or five a day, and then one day I just just didn't work anymore. Did you see that uh, refrigerator that we have out in the hallway? That's a Black Rifle Coffee refrigerator. Yeah, they have these cans of Black Rifle Coffee. It's like a, a cold. It's like espresso with milk and sugar. It's so fucking good. They're so delicious. But there's 300 milligrams of yeah, caffeine it'd, it'd in every kill me. can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is a Red Bull? A Red Bull's like, I'm a guess, 150. Is a Red Bull? Let's guess. How many how many milligrams? Can Not even. A, no idea. No. Too many. What is it? It's a 12 ounce can. It says 111. Okay, that ain't shit. It's got that taurine. In it. I'm just kidding. Oh, it's got that bullcum. <laughs> no, no, it's got other stuff in it. Do but. you know taurine is bullcum? I do now. 
De- <laughs> I don't know if Red Bull has it anymore. I think that was the original. Yeah. The Hitler was into that stuff, apparently. Yeah, I mean, that should will give you wings, right? I think that's the whole reason why Red Bull has a bull on it, and it has taurine. I think the bull is supposed to... I don't think they get it that way. I think Actually, they, yeah, it says, this says it has 1,000 milligrams of taurine. Oh, Jesus. I don't know if that's a lot compared to some. Yeah, I don't else, know. So. No, I don't, that might be a small amount. I, I have no idea. I have no reference point. But here's the thing. Um... You gave me this. Thank you very much. Absolutely. This is, uh, it says the Yamakaze single malt Japanese whiskey. And you said that this is. Uh, a so, yeah. So the Yamazaki Sherry Cask, uh, 2016, this bottle won, I can't remember which, you know, whiskey world awards or whatever, but it did win gold. Um, and so this became like, I don't want to call it the Holy Grail, but it became one of the most sought after bottles of whiskey in modern times. And uh, mainly not just because of how the fact that it won gold, but they only made enough to produce 5,000 bottles. And so the bottles have been gone for quite some time. Listen to this. Here we go. <laughs> oh, that smells good. I have a buddy, my buddy Alex. Shout out to Alex. Is uh, he's really into like really nice Japanese whiskey? He'll get it. He'll he'll, he'll, he'll he'll he knows this. Give me that glass, son. Come on. Give me just just a, a just a touch. Just a touch. That that bottle's got to last. There's not many left. Come on. Nothing lasts. <laughs> what are you gonna live forever? Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Oh wow, that's interesting. It's that... almost like ethereal. It's like, God, that's unique. Mm-hmm. That is very unique. That's a um, surprising taste because it is whiskey-like, mm-hmm. but it's very different than any other whiskey I've ever tried. It's also like feel now. It's almost like tingling like all around your palate. Mm. So when did you know that you wanted to be a chef? Like how long have you been like really into cooking? Because you're a young guy. By the way, congratulations on the Michelin stars. Thank you. That's a Thank that's you. giant, right? In the world of chefs, that's that's the fucking thing, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I dedicated the last probably 15 years of my life just to trying to get a Michelin star. And uh, when I found out this year, uh, they had me on a, on a Zoom call. They kind, of, they kind of lied to me. They kind of, uh, what they did is they said, uh, we wanted, they said, first of all, I said, you're not, gonna, you're not getting a star this year, just so you know. But we want to have, uh, send someone to the restaurant in Los Angeles, and um, we have some interview questions we want to ask you about, uh, you know, how it was to operate during COVID. And I said, well, I'm in Austin, but I, I can fly back. And they're like, no, no big deal. Don't fly back. Just, just zoom in. So I zoom in. And they have my wife, uh, who's our pastry chef and my business partner. Um, she's at the restaurant. And so is my brother, who is the chef of uh, uh, Sushi Bar in Montecito uh, and our chef at uh, Pasta Bar. And they're all three there uh, just in the restaurant. And I'm at my house here in Austin and I'm on Zoom. And they start asking us some random questions about, uh, you know, how is it, you know, what's it like being open and what have been the, 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 you know, pitfalls you had to overcome. And uh, then out of nowhere, they just go, oh, and um, I have one extra question. Um, uh, congratulations. Uh, two of your restaurants are getting Michelin stars. Oh, they <laughs> snuck it in on They you. snuck it in. And I'm oh. on. And the thing is, I'm on a Zoom. And so I was like, wait, what? What did she say? Like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't hear. And, and everyone, it, it, and I thought we had just gotten one. And it turned out, they said, no, no, no. And I said, wait, what, which, rest, which restaurant? And they said, sushi bar. Montecito and uh, uh, and pasta bar, 
and uh, I and just started, pasta bars in LA. Pasta bars in LA, and um, I just started crying. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I was just reading uh, on the history of the Michelin star. And that it was really back in the early days of travel, mm-hmm. they had a book would show you where you can get your car repaired, where you could refuel, and then where you can get something to eat. Yeah, and it, then people got really obsessed with the where to get something to eat part, and then it became a separate entity. It was never so. I don't think they ever set out to become the world standard on cuisine. I don't think that was ever the point. The point was, we have to give you a reason to buy tires, and that reason is to drive, and so here's some things to drive to. And so that's what the one-star, two-star, three-star you know, delineations have to, have to do with, is this one is worth you know, a stop, this one's worth a detour, and this one's worth a journey. Uh. And so that's how you get one-star, two-star, three-star. So one-star means if it's on your way, stop. That was over a hundred years ago now one star means you know fly there but three star means like upend your life and go figure like go find that place what's what's that who's got three stars uh here in america not many mcdonald's. people mcdonald's yes McDonald's I, think they have, I, I think they have four stars actually <laughs> is there is there uh anywhere in america that has three uh yeah a couple couple places like what uh, the French Laundry has three stars. Oh, okay. That's that place where Gavin Newsom got in trouble, right? I watched a video on that. Um, not on that, but on uh, Bourdain. When Bourdain, uh, I think it was the old show. I think it wasn't even, I think it was No Reservations. No reservations yeah. yeah, and he went to French Laundry. It was pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, I've only got to eat there once, but it's, I mean, it's a. It's an institution. It's that good? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, it, for a long time, it was the restaurant in America. Mm-hmm. The it was the restaurant. And isn't America. it kind of a weird spot? Like you got to travel. Yeah, but that's part of sort of the allure of. And not to say they wouldn't be a three star restaurant without you know having that uh, that part of traveling. But three stars is when you're worth the journey. Mm. And um, so you could be in like the Himalayas or some shit. Yeah, I mean a lot of some of the the three star restaurants around the world are not in you know they're not in strip malls. They're not in city centers. They're you know they've bought ranches. They've bought uh, you know they have land. Uh, mm. El Bulli was on the top of a mountain. Where's El Bulli? Well, that's been closed for a long time, but that was in Spain. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, I mean, there's... are saying it like I know. I don't know any of this. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you, let me into your world. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What's El Bulli? Uh, so, that was Fair and Adria. Um, they, uh, they were named best restaurant in the world several years over. Um, it was really the restaurant that... Uh, Really brought what became known as molecular gastronomy. The all the food that's that you know, Jamie would probably look at and say, "This is what what am I looking at? This doesn't look like food. This looks like interesting abstract art." Um, but you know, they fig. You know, today you have restaurants where you know you'll get literally a balloon that's brought out to the table, and you eat the suck the helium out and eat the balloon, and that's you know, one of the courses. <laughs> Oh wow! Twelve iconic dishes of El Bulli. Mm. So this is like fancy dining, and this is like it's beyond fancy dining. It's, someone it's art. from Jamie's lineage would look about this, and <laughs> well, <yeah>. if, <laughs> if you asked him, is that like what is this? And you didn't tell him it was. You wouldn't think that was food. Yeah, Jamie's not into this. I could tell already. Uh, is that sea urchin? <laughs> that that is sea urchin. Oh, delicious. Do you like sea urchin? No, I'm, of course I he just doesn't, tried but... octopus recently. And. 
Yeah, oh, okay. I feel bad eating octopus because I found out how fucking smart. I they know are. that's what I thought. I was like, I'll try it, so I can say I tried it. But they're, but they're, you know, they're it's fucking, so fucking good. Though. They're very good, but they are murderers. I mean, they murder everything. Yeah, I'd rather have macaroni and cheese and steak. Or <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> macaroni and cheese. I'm just saying, like, I'd, I'd rather have something else. There is good macaroni <laughs> and cheese out there, by the way. There's some places. I'm trying off the tip of my head. There was a place that had. Like uh, a truffle macaroni and cheese with like really good cheese. God damn it! What place was that? I'm not gonna get it. Uh, I'm gonna let it go. My house for Thanksgiving. That's where you get the best mac and cheese. You make mac and cheese? Yeah. Yeah. What What do you do with it? So it's it's uh, partially my grandma's recipe. Um, so basically, I make uh, I make a cheese sauce separately with uh, with Gruyere, sharp cheddar, um, and then uh, I'll boil the macaroni cool it down, and then I'll take a bunch of shredded cheese as well and uh, kind of layer it uh, almost like a, almost like you would be layering like a lasagna a little bit, and then cover the entire top with uh, melted cheese as well. And then kind of the secret to that is in the cheese sauce, uh, smoked paprika. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And so when you eat it, it's got a little bit of the you know, craft mac and cheese of like the, the, like the, what is even like the sauciness, uh, but you have layers and you build it when it's cold. So you have layers of just shredded cheese all through it. So you still have that, that pull of the cheese, like a nice pizza. Mm, and so then you have a crispy cheese crust. Lasagna like almost. It's really good. Wow. Damn. Son. Yeah. You know, I am uh, addicted to watch it. There's so many um, pages on Instagram now <clears throat> that are just, de- they're essentially like a one minute cooking show. Have you ever watched any of those? Maybe. I'm sure, I'm sure I've flipped through them. It's, why do people love looking at people cooking food? Because I fucking love it. Yeah. Um, I think it's got to be something like psychological. Mm. It's got to be something about like watching somebody nourish like so, like creating nourishment maybe mm. in some sort of like you know uh, abstract way that you haven't really it's an art thing though it's also like there's a beauty to it there's a creation of like a, a delicious meal like you know how good that's going to taste because you've had something similar and so you're watching them put together some dish with skill and and then all the different elements of it and all the you know the knowledge that has to be uh, you have to you have to earn the ability to cook a delicious meal. Like you have, it's not something very simple. Like to do it just right, it's it's a art form. It is, but it's it, but like most art forms, it's a craft and it's a practicable mm. craft. Yeah. And but I think back to what you were saying about, um, like what why are people attracted to that? I mean, you can go on and watch, you know, people blow dry their hair or apply makeup, and that you know is probably attracting some people but only people who care about you know makeup where it feels like even people who aren't into food who aren't like you know you know self-acclaimed foodies they still like watching food and i think it has to be something deeper than just a craft that is interesting to look at yeah though that's one of the things that's fascinating about it is that it is a craft but it's also like you said it's nourishment i mean everybody needs food and it's also it looks fucking amazing it's one of the only things where the artist, if you call him an artist or craftsman, have to take enough responsibility and have enough integrity to understand that the art they're creating is going to be ingested by the audience, mm. not just hung on the wall or worn. Right. 
Yeah, well, that it took me a while to figure out that it is art. It really was Bourdain that showed me from his first show, from No Reservations. I, I remember watching that show, and it, one of the beautiful things about No Reservations and then also um, Parts Unknown was that his narration was yeah. all his writing, and it was all so very specific to his writing. In fact, his voice is so specific that, you know, he got obsessed with jujitsu and started posting on a Reddit jujitsu sub-thread, and eventually people figured out that it was him. Just because of his voice? I don't know how they figured it out, and it may have been posthumously that they figured it out, but there was this whole article about Bourdain posting on this, this subreddit, and like real honest about his journey and his battles with jiu-jitsu, but he, he did it in a way that's very similar to the way he does the narration on his show, which was uh, one of the more interesting things about the show, because you got an insight into an art where you're, you're, the practitioner is explaining it, but he's so articulate and passionate and yeah. shooting star I just, gotcha. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see people like, am I tripping? Yeah, there's shooting stars in the ceiling. But there's this, there's a, an aspect to the way he would describe it. And I remember watching his show going, oh, it's art. Like yeah. I was like, duh. Like, why didn't I see it this way before? I just thought, oh, that place is delicious. But there's also an art to like changing a tire. Or anything like when you when you see someone who's really good at something, there's an art to it, mm. right? Especially if you are into that thing. Yeah, yeah. I always talk about that with pool, the game of pool, mm -hmm. because most people look at pool; it's fucking boring. You're just shooting a ball in the hole. Yeah, who cares? But for someone like me who plays, I see someone like Earl Strickland, like a great pool player. I watch him play, like God damn it, that's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, when somebody can make something look easy, but also make it look sexy at the same time. Mm. Sexy. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, it's, it's really cool that we live in a time where the entry barrier to like to expressing yourself in that kind of a way is so, so simple. Like, uh, there's a guy on uh, Instagram that I was just going back and forth with. He's got a great page. It's uh, cooking underscore with underscore fire. And he makes bomb ass Mexican food. And he was a chef and he, uh, he's just basically, dedicating all his time now to putting online content out and he's doing like a one minute cookie show he just does the whole di like no matter what he makes he yeah, bangs say, it out cooking it, with fire seems to be hard to do in one minute well he does it's just a really you know well edited thing he'll do yeah. the, the whole deal from creating the salsa to cooking the meat to creating some sort of a sauce to go on it and every time I watch his his channel, I want to fucking eat like a pig. <laughs> so like he's like he's creating all these different things. Like he's and then he's, you know, making the okay. This is just hot dogs wrapped in bacon. You picked a terrible one, Jamie. <laughs> oh, wait, excuse me. Sounds <laughs> delicious. I think Jamie put picked the one he wants uh, us to cook for him tonight. <laughs> that is exactly what Jamie would want. I want to watch him cook shrimp. Ah, but anyway, it's one of those things on the. That's a little nomad grill. That's pretty badass cool grill. You could take that sucker around with like a suitcase. It's all insulated. But the point is that it's there's a the entry barrier to putting out content like that is so it's so minimal now. It's like all you have to do is have a camera and point it at you when you cook and just have some narration. Yeah, it's something that um definitely wasn't there before. 
But uh, I don't know. I haven't really gotten that into watching it really myself. Do you, uh, I mean, obviously you've worked with some great chefs. Do you like watching people put the food together? I used to watch like food TV religiously. Um, I think that was, that was, you know, when I was sort of like just up and coming as like a young cook. Um, when, you know, the thing is uh, being a chef and being a cook are two entirely different things. Obviously being a cook is a, is a prerequisite. What's the difference? So if, if, if I was to come over to your house tonight and I was to cook you the best meal you ever had, that would not make me a great chef. That would make me a great cook. So you cook one thing, like maybe a chef means you can cook a bunch of different things? No. The fact that I did it myself. If I cook you food, I'm cooking. If I brought five or six people over to your house and I got them to work together to make you the best meal you've ever had, that would make me a chef. So mm. call, calling, a, saying that like, you know, I, you know, my wife make, you know, my wife cooks great food, so she's a fantastic chef isn't correct. It's it's more like saying that uh, a conductor of an orchestra, you wouldn't call the conductor a great violinist. Now, the conductor probably needs to not just know how to play the violin, but also, you know, be very good at it. Okay, so a chef can cook, but they really coordinate all these people that are cooking together in a restaurant. It means chief. But when you have a private chef that people hire to their home to cook for them, and that's an individual... What is that guy? Now a private cook? Well, you can hire a private chef. That sounds a lot better than a private cook. But what is that? Per what is the job function of that person? Well, I guess in that scenario, if you just have a... Because there's some households that have, you know, a team, right? Um, and some households would have a single individual who's cooking. So you can, you can be the chef who also cooks. Um, it's not to say that if you cook, you are therefore not a chef. It's just that the difference... And we're talking more about in the, you know, in the industry... Um, being a chef is to be someone who brings others together to cook as opposed to someone who just cooks. So you would call it like if you're working in a restaurant, a steak restaurant, the chef would be the main guy that tells everybody what to do. That's and the person who's typically writing the menu, who's handling all the ordering. That's typically the person who's dealing with the broken dishwasher. Oh. Well, that's not glamorous. No. The fuck is that? No. Don't you have a guy that handles a dishwasher? <laughs> well, I guess maybe if you're at a famous steakhouse, maybe the dish, the <clears throat> chef isn't dealing with that. But in a in a in a normal you know restaurant, small restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other people that are working for them, they're cooking the meals. You wouldn't consider them chefs as well. Well, that's why the person who typically runs like the line uh, is called the sous chef, under chef. Oh, that's what sous means. Yeah. S o u s. S o u s. <clears throat> so you have you have chef de parties which are basically station cooks and then they report to a sous chef who reports to in some cases a chef de cuisine who reports to a chef okay so the sous vide means underwater then is that what Under it means pressure i think it's i think vide is pressure but i could be wrong but you're cooking uh, in water Where, what's the pressure <clears throat> it doesn't have to be water so you can cook oh. sous vide in like in uh in any sort of so what you're doing with sous vide is is you're creating an anaerobic environment by uh what is what sous vide? Is sous vide? Under, under vacuum. vacuum. Okay. Okay, so like a vacuum bag. Yeah, so un right. under pressure. Oh, okay, um, right. And so the idea is, uh, you know, the picture over here on the right is what you would most associate sous vide with is one of these right. immersion circulators. Um, but you also can take that bag and you can uh, put it into a steamer, which I guess does have water, but it's not underwater. I've seen people cook sous vide 
in a Ziploc bag, though. Mm -hmm. So what the hell's going on there? Well, you've taken out, I mean, you didn't use a vacuum machine per se, but right. you can do what we call ghetto vac. <laughs> and so if you actually take, let's say take a steak, you put it in a, a Ziploc bag. Mm -hmm. If you take a bowl of ice water and you submerge the steak into the ice water, it's going to push and force all the oxygen out the top and you slowly, slowly put it in there until you just have the zip at the top and then you Ziploc and you pull it out and it's a ghetto vac. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, okay. But I've seen people do it where they just put it in there and whoop, just zip it. None of that ghetto vacuuming. They probably aren't at a really nice restaurant. Uh, no, they're that. at home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can do it at home. But is the results the same? So the the less the less of an environment that is there, the more accurate you're going to have the cook. Mm. So if you have a bunch of oxygen in that bag, then that oxygen is going to, to react at a different temperature than uh, or a different rate than if there's no oxygen. Now, when you first started cooking, did you go to culinary school? Did you Were you cooking actively before you went to culinary school? Yeah, so I went to culinary school. I had been cooking for years, um, and I only went for a few months, and I dropped out. Really? Yeah. Look at that, kids. You can drop out of culinary <laughs> school and get two Michelin stars. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you drop out? I thought I was going to like University of Food. You know, I, I enrolled because I wanted to learn why. I wanted to learn. And everything I knew up until that point in my career was just what the guy next to me had taught me. And that was because he was like, all right, once you get here, okay, turn that. Okay, you see what you're looking at. That, that, that's it. Just do this. As a line cook, you, you spend most of your time just doing what you're told. And so I thought, okay, I... At this point, this is what I knew what I wanted to do. And so I thought to myself that I'm going to go to school and really learn about this. And then I got there and it was cooking class. And I, I had no, no uh, desire to, to take cooking classes. Well, what do you mean by cooking class? It was just step-by-step -step basics yeah I'm, they're I'm, teaching you the alphabet essentially kind of it was I mean it wasn't even that it was the alphabet it was well there was a couple of, of, of reasons that I quit um, one was actually we talked about the French laundry I had the opportunity while I was in culinary school one of my uh, chefs um, had invited me to go with with him and another group of chefs to the uh, the French laundry and I went to my teacher uh, and said, hey, uh, I need a couple days off. I have been invited. And they had this really strict rule of if you miss two, uh, two classes in any uh, semester or whatever, you fail the class. And this was like um, a breakfast egg cookery class. Uh, and I said, well, I used to work at a restaurant called BLD in Los Angeles. And um, I worked both the plancha and sometimes I worked the egg station. And we did 400 cover brunches. Um, I could like I know that we're gonna boil one egg at a time next week, uh, but like can I, you know, this is a, f a fantastic opportunity for me as a young cook to go and have dinner with these chefs at the French Laundry, and they said sorry, you know, if if you're not here for this, then you you're gonna fail, and I said well then fuck that, I should be getting extra credit. Yeah, it seems like that would be a wiser choice to give you credit, not yeah, fail I, you. And and I, and I also said well I'll, look I'll take the. The, the final quiz for this class now, which is, you know, you have to make the dish. I already spent over a year working four undercover brunches at a really nice restaurant. I, like, you're, I'm not going to learn that much more than what I've already done in real life. I've already left that part of my career to go on, you know, to the bigger and better restaurants. So did you feel like the system was just too rigid or just the way they were teaching well, it? They ended up 
getting a huge class action lawsuit against them later on, and they had to give everyone their tuition money back, I think. Why? I didn't follow it. I also didn't join the class action lawsuit, but um, I think it was something about over-promising and under-delivering. Mm, okay. Well, <clears throat> is it safe to say that all culinary schools are not created equal? Oh, 100%. So if you went to another one, maybe? Yeah, I, I don't think culinary school's not worth it. I just think that, um, like, if, like if you were to come to me, you know, 30, 40 years ago and said, I want to be a cook, I would say, uh, don't go to culinary school. Because if you go to culinary school, you come out with debt. And if you come out of culinary school and we hire you at one of our restaurants, we're going to end up saying to you, great, everything you just learned, okay, don't do any of that because now we want you to do it exactly how we do it. And we're going to show you how we do it. You're also going to start out at the bottom of the totem pole. So you're going to start out, you're going to be, you know, peeling onions. So <clears throat> so cooking, is it safe to say or fair to say that it's essentially it's a craft that is best learned on the job? Yeah, I mean, think about like you've been around like tattoo shops enough. Sure. You know what they what like the apprentices go through to be able to tattoo there. Yeah, they tattoo on their own <laughs> legs and shit. <laughs> um or they get their friends. The thing <clears throat> is you pig ears. You could imagine if 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 they went to school to learn how to tattoo yeah. and then went to the tattoo shop, they'd still have to go through that hazing. They'd still have to go not that there's hazing in the kitchen, but you still have to sort of earn your stripes. Yeah. You don't yeah. and one of the things was when I enrolled in culinary school, they had said when you graduate, you will be eligible to be a chef de cuisine. You'll start around $75,000 a year. And I think that's where they got in trouble. I could be wrong, but um, mm. oh, uh, I see. when you get out of culinary school, you're going to work either for free. Well, you can't do that anymore. Um, but you used to have to work for free. Uh, or you're just going to come in at the minimum, minimum wage. Because, yes, you have a degree from culinary school. But that doesn't mean that you're going to know anything that we need for this restaurant. Interesting. So when did you start and what what did you do when you your first job? Um, so my so I started well, I actually feel like I should answer you the very first question you asked me, which is when did I know I wanted to cook? Yeah, because that kind of gets us there. Um, so I guess my dad knew before I knew because uh, he just recently uh, sent me a video. It's actually on my Instagram. Um, it's a my third birthday party and he's bought me a chef's knife. Wow. Yeah. Your third birthday party? My third party? birthday party. And he can, you can clearly hear him say, <laughs> it's funny because I think, I haven't gotten the full story, but I think my mom's holding the old, you know, the old camera and it kind of shaking. And I guess he says, oh. There it is right there. I think he, he says, I don't know what else to get him. All he wants to do is cook. <laughs> That's not a real knife, is it? Did he give you get you a real chef's night? I actually haven't asked him because he sent that to me and he said, "Look, you've always wanted to cook." Um, so I don't know if that's a uh, I probably but knowing my dad, yeah, it's probably a real knife. And did he just hide it from you? Here's if here's your knife, and then I'm no, hide I, it. I I cooked growing up every day. But did you use that knife? I don't remember. But you were three. Yeah, probably like, not. It probably yeah. wasn't. It seems like a lot for a three year old. Those little tiny fingers. <laughs> yeah, see your fingers. They're all there. They're so all there. But, but I, I'm missing you know some parts. Are you? Yeah. Some tips. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no. So, so right away, yeah, you I, always wanted to cook. Apparently, I did. I don't really. I don't remember that, but I do remember um, being. I'm the oldest of uh, five, and uh, growing up, um, my dad cooked every single night at home. 
and uh, he never wanted to go out. So my parents divorced when I was very young, and uh, when we were at dad's house, he cooked, and uh, each of us had a responsibility. You know, one of my sisters would set the table, the other one would clear the table, my brother would do the dishes, whatever that it was. Um, I was the only one who could see above the counter at a certain point, and uh, so I was always the one who would help cook. Mm. Interesting. That's the days before phones. Because now you'd be like, kids, get off your phones and help daddy. You'd be like, yeah, probably. Oh, just let me finish my TikTok. No, but apparently I would stop playing video games to come cook. Oh. Yeah. No, I, I, I loved it. And um, I cooked all the way, you know, I that's how I started, you know, when I was younger and I wanted to, you know, take girls out. It was a lot less expensive if you go to the store and you buy stuff and you cook at home. Plus, it's kind of romantic and impressive. Like, wow, Philip cooks. Yeah, and mm. you you already finish, you know, you finish dinner and you're at home. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, when you that when you have something that you really love to do, like really early on, what an advantage that is. Because that's one of the things that troubles people the most when they're young. It's like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, when you find a thing that you're passionate about early, God, it's such a huge advantage. Yeah, there, it's really interesting looking back because there's really only three things that I'm like that I excel at: uh, cooking, uh, playing the drums, and my dad bought me a, or my dad my my parents got me a drum set when I was 18 months old, uh, and uh, poker. I learned my grandmother taught me how to uh, count using cards. Really? So, th and those are to today. Those are the three things that I have excelled at in my life. So, do you make money playing poker? Not like professionally, but I, I have I have won money. So, do you, like when you go to Vegas, do you get like real serious and take like nootropics and <laughs> fucking sit down and calm uh, your mind? I took tournament poker serious for a long time, uh, but that's something I would go to Vegas for because in LA we've got fantastic tournament poker there mm -hmm. but i you know i would study and i would listen to podcasts and i would you know review hands and things like that yeah my friend ari ari shafir when he was um coming up in la he was making most of his money playing poker it's a fantastic discipline that that creates a very difficult uh how do you explain it it's uh well i'm sure he's explained it to you it's, uh, I don't listen to him. I'm here for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very difficult life. I tried playing professionally um, when I was 18. Uh, there were Indian casinos you could play at, and I would I would go there and spend you know four or five days, and I play for three days straight. Um, really? Yeah. Get a room there and just crash. Yeah, they'll give you, they'll give you a room. Wow. Um, and then uh, I started. At one day, I woke up and I was like, you know. I was playing for a lot. I was playing for a lot of money at, at the time for being 18 years old. Um, and, you know, I'd sit down with a couple thousand in front of me. And then I would, you know, question whether or not I wanted to add extra cheese at my Taco Bell order because it was 27 cents. And it was like the, the world just became so skewed to me that I was like, okay, I need to stop. Because you were looking at money so fucked up because you were making so, money, so much money and playing for so much money when you were playing poker? Yeah, it wasn't even that I was making it because I was, you know, it was that I was playing with the money. And so you start looking at, at the world in terms of big blinds. And, uh, big blinds? Big blinds. So when you're playing Hold'em, you have uh, to the left of the dealer button, you have a small blind. And then to the left of him, you have a big blind, which is, a, which is your, basically your minimum bet. And so if you're playing a, like a 2-5 game, and that's what I was playing back then. What's that mean? $2, $5. So $5 is the minimum bet to, 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 
to join the hand. Um, and so it's forced action to the left of the dealer button. You're required to put $2 in if you're uh, the small blind, and you're required to put $5 in just to start the action. So then you look at your cards, and if you're not in one of the blinds, you can fold for free. Uh-huh. Or you can raise more money, or you can put in $5 just to stay. And um, when you start looking at the world in terms of big blinds, it's uh, time to either make that the only thing you do forever <laughs> or, or do something else. And were you thinking about only playing poker at one point in time? Yeah, I was. Um, and uh, I was doing, I had a really good job while I was playing cards. Um, I was actually selling mortgages. No so, kidding. Yeah, so I was one of those guys that was selling the, you know, the uh, stated income mortgages. So you're selling mortgages, playing poker, but you really wanted to be a chef. Yeah, well, I wasn't a hundred percent sure yet that I wanted to be a chef. So when I so when I was fifteen, I think is when I dropped out of high school, and um, I did that because the band I was playing with was starting to take off, and I spent the next several years touring, and um, I would you know we'd be on tour and and you were on uh, tour when you were fifteen. Yeah, that's divorced parents right there. <laughs> Dad's like, go ahead, fuck it. Well, my, my live your life. Don't my, make the mistakes dad made. Well, <laughs> get out there. Those are the things dad did too. So, oh Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, what, did your, what did your parents think when you said you were going to go on tour at fifteen? Well, the band played in 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 my dad's studio. My dad was a record producer. Oh, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Um. So I, uh, we would we would play you know locally back then. And um, then we'd start doing like weekend tours. And then when it was time to like, okay, I'm going to stop going to school. The only deal I had to make was that whenever I wasn't on tour, I had to have a job. I couldn't just like sleep in all day. So uh, there was a Jamba Juice right by our house and <laughs> got a job there. Wow. And what, what led you to not keep pursuing the music? At a certain point... So, so while I was playing cards, or sorry, while I was playing music, actually, I, I turned the studio certain nights a week into a little poker room. So I'd have like friends over and we'd play cards at the house. Um, but uh, while I was uh, uh, touring, uh, I eventually decided because when I when I decided to stop going to school, I said to myself, "If the music thing doesn't work, I'm going to go to sushi school." So uh, the music thing did work, and. Uh, a couple years went by, and um, actually, my godmother owned a uh, catering company. And so, uh, in between tours, I didn't really want to keep working at like Jamba Juice or Starbucks or anything like that. And so, I uh, asked her if I could work for her. And so, I invited over her, her over to the house. I cooked dinner for her, and she said, "Well, I'll introduce you to my chef. And if my chef wants to hire you, then you'll be hired." And so I went to uh, to her um, catering company, met the chef. Uh, the first thing was like, okay, you're making family meal today. And so I cooked for the whole staff, and she said, I'll hire you as a dishwasher. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, and Was that um, because that was the only job they had available? Looking back at it, I was offended and angry, but I didn't care because of what she said after that, which is... Um, you don't get to start being a cook. You have to start 
as a dishwasher so you can have respect for um, you know what it is that the dishwashers do. And um, she said, here's how this works. The faster you clean that dish pit, the more I'll teach you. So whenever that dish pit's clean, you come and find me and I'll give you a task. But if there's ever any dishes, that's what you're doing. Mm. So it kind of gave me that, that bit of work ethic of like, all right, I'm going to work my way into the ne that next position. That seems to be a theme with great restaurants. And when you talk to chefs, this work ethic theme, because it seems like when you, you know you talk to people that have worked in restaurants, one of the things that they will almost unanimously discuss is the amount of hours and the grind and how difficult it is. Yeah. And that development of work ethic almost is like kind of a boot camp for chefs. It is. It's, um, I mean, it's not so much anymore. Laws have changed. Culture has changed. But it was you're spending like a 16-hour day was not even a really long day. I dated a girl once who went to college for restaurant and hotel management. And then she got a job at this restaurant. And I remember I would go visit her and she was fucking miserable. I mean, miserable. She couldn't believe the hours that she had to work. But you have to love it. Yeah, that's an industry it. you have to love. Well, she just wanted a career. You know, she had went to school, she graduated from school, and then she had this this job that was like, and then she had this boyfriend who was a fuck up, who was a comedian. So it was like very, very weird for her because like I had most of my day completely free. <laughs> And she was working, you know, 14, 15 hours a day at least. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you really want to take food seriously and cooking seriously, you're going to have to, you know, make a lot of sacrifices. Yeah. You know, I've, Just I've, the time. Mm -hmm. You're not there for birthdays. You're not there for anniversaries. You're not there for, for, for uh, Valentine's Day for sure. Because you have to work. Because you have to work. Day. Yeah. Because yeah. someone has to cook at all those restaurants you go to. Yeah. Yeah, people listening, if you are thinking of going down this path, prepare Look, it's, yourself. Yeah, it's a fantastic path, but you have to understand what it's like. And I think the reason it worked for me, or the reason I loved it so much, is it really felt like being on tour, except I got to sleep in my own bed. It How so? Well, be, like playing music, you spend all day getting ready for sh the show that night. Um and there's something to getting to the restaurant and prepping all day, getting ready for the show that night. Um, and so I feel like the camaraderie of being on it, like being in a crew is much is a lot like being in a band. Um, the hours are a lot like being in a band. Um, and then the shenanigans, you know, after hours are a lot like being in a band. The boozing, is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yeah. That's the other thing that I learned from Bourdain. I didn't know how hard people partied. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, there was a lot of nights you just don't go to sleep. You just get out of the restaurant at 1.30 in the morning, you go to the bar, then you go somewhere else, then you go back and open the restaurant the next day. That doesn't seem good for you. No, it's terrible. <laughs> I, ha I had to... Um, and That's I, where the Red Bull comes in? Well, no, I, I quit Red Bull earlier than that, but um, uh, thankfully I never, I never got into drugs, so it wasn't that, but I, I would drink a lot, and um, I actually had one time... Uh, uh, where I 
finished service, took two steps and just collapsed, just hit the ground. Whoa. Yeah. At I had, the end of the day. At the so end of the day. It you was, pulled an all-nighter? I think two or three days in a row, yeah. Oh, Jesus. But I was like 21. Two or three days of no sleep? At 21. Yeah. Maybe like an hour and a half sleep here and there. Jesus. But um, yeah, I mean, when I, 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 my first sous chef job, I was on the uh, schedule. It said, next to my name, all seven days said OP-CL. Open to close. Whoa. We did breakfast and we did dinner service. So I would open the restaurant at about 7 a.m. and I would leave around 1.32. So when you open the restaurant at 7 a.m., what time are you actually arriving? Uh, man, this was like oh, this was a long time ago, but I I probably was getting there. I was probably getting there around seven, six forty-five, seven. When I say open, I mean I would get to the restaurant, open the door. Not that we were like, so there open was someone the there that was already prepping. Yeah, I'm trying to remember because we were at this um, in this sort of like uh, the restaurant was a lunch and dinner restaurant, but we served breakfast. And as like a commissary to like there was like it was like in a building complex mm. um, So I really wasn't responsible for breakfast um, So there would be I think there was people there before I would get there a building like an office building complex that Yeah, yeah, so they would just grab something quick. Yeah, that kind of deal. yeah Like so I would get in there and the dishwasher would already like he'd make be making like ham and cheese sandwiches or something like that mm-hmm. But um, and so you were there from 7 a.m. And then what time would you get out of there? usually I mean I probably one one thirty and nowadays with labor laws you really couldn't schedule that right? well I was on I was on salary oh interesting but that salary would have to be you know 3x at this point yeah because because now they've changed the rule a couple of years ago salary is no longer a uh, a contract between you and I salaries have to fall into a certain you have to qualify so you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to not give you overtime by giving you a salary to have you work when I ask you to. Right. Now you have to pay them, pay everybody a specific dollar amount, and they have to have, hold specific responsibilities in order to not uh, accrue overtime. Yeah, I think that's good because I think there's a lot of employers that are abusive. But I also think there's something romantic about this story of you almost dying. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, like, I do appreciate, like, long, hard yeah. work days. There's something to that. Because, like, I hear that, and I know you got through it, and you became very successful. So I'm like, see, it works. Look, when I think Margarita and my first date was at that restaurant. Ah. And it was, uh, I mean, people ask me all the time, how did how did you get her? And it's food it has to be <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious um well you're a cool guy don't tell yourself short plus you're kind of cute oh, appreciate it jamie <laughs> <laughs> i'm top three in this room for sure um top three I, i'd say so um but uh so because of that schedule i couldn't take her on a date mm. um and so i remember the very first date we had was at the restaurant. I told her to show up at 12.30 after I, I sent everybody home. And uh, I had spent all day secretly prepping a special menu. And she showed up. And I sat her in the dining room that like overlooked the kitchen. And I would make a course, bring it out to her, sit down with her, have a sip of wine, and then uh, uh, go back in the kitchen, make the next course. Oh, wow. Yeah. What did you think she did during the time where you were in there cooking? Uh, well, I told her to bring a friend with her because I, to- oh. I told her that I'm going to, you know, <laughs> otherwise she's there for 20 minutes in between each course. 
that's a, that, well listen man that's a clever move look it worked yeah clearly yeah that's a that's interesting i mean i would imagine that that's probably one of the most difficult occupations to date in yeah um i i sacrificed a lot of um uh relationships prior to that one yeah i can only imagine it's in that way it's very similar to stand-up comedy not in the work ethic part because comedians are notoriously terrible at that yeah but the um it's hard because you know you date a girl and they want a normal evening life and you're like i gotta go do a set and you know i had relationships where they're like you don't have to and that was like the record skipping in the room like yes i do yeah yes i do like let's you you because i have friends who've had relationships where the the girl said you don't have to and they listened and i saw what happened they eventually fell off the radar and then vanished and stopped being a comic and then they would come to the comedy club you know like seven years removed like hey yeah. i'm thinking about getting back into it and and everybody look at you like you said i have aids <laughs> like they just <laughs> backed away from you like not not even aids because aids is not like oh, it's like i have covid sure like like i'm right now filled with bugs that i could spread on you like we wanted to run away from them we didn't whatever they had maybe it's contagious like you quit you quit the greatest fucking job on earth and now you want to get back in just get back in. Don't tell us you're thinking about getting back in. Fucking get back in. Well, I think it has to do with with communication. And I think that's what a good relationship is built on. And when we started our relationship, it was very, like, I was like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And at, her, at, you know, at that time in her life, she's like, this is what I'm doing. And we made, it, we made an agreement that uh, our careers would always come first. And, uh, you know, luckily our careers, you know, overlapped. Um, and for the last 13 years, we've worked together. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. And it's very cool that it works and you guys still get along so great, even though you're in this like highly stressful, like very strenuous sort of an environment. Well, I think it, again, it's because we've, we, we have boundaries and we have rules for like, this is, this is where, so like if we're sitting at home having dinner or if we're at a restaurant, uh, you know, for her birthday and there's a call from one of our restaurants or we have something like that always comes first. And so there's never been a there's never really been an issue where it's like jealousy because one of us has to do what we have to do because it's that's what we do. How hard is it for you to go to restaurants? Because how judgy? really easy. Are you judgy? No, that's what I mean. no, you're not. No, um, I I I can appreciate and I can I appreciate food. I love food. Food's like my favorite thing. That's why I got into this. Um, but I do think that there are times uh, when I eat something and it really comes down to only one time and it's it's value. Is, you know, is what I'm eating worth what I'm paying for it? Mm, um, because here's the thing. If I go and spend $500 on dinner, uh, it should be at a certain level. Right. You're asking to be not judged, but you're asking to be held to a standard. Right. Yeah. If we're, you know, if we're at, you know, Jamie takes us some spot to go get some, you know, bacon wrapped hot dogs. I can just appreciate it. It's not supposed to be life changing. Right. 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 No. Yeah. I mean, that was always the case with like like street food. Right. Like street food is delicious, but it's it's unpretentious. Food doesn't have to be pretentious. Right. I mean, look, I one of my favorite things to make is a cheeseburger. Yeah. No, I know. 
Yeah, I, I need to try your cheeseburgers. <laughs> I've I've heard legendary status from the, the people at Vulcan. They're good when you set up out there. Yeah, they're yeah. good. Well, that's the what happened. How did that happen? How did like this smash burger thing come into prominence? Because all of a sudden, with in my view, mm-hmm. within the last like five or six years, like smash burgers became a thing. I'll be honest. I wasn't really paying attention. But all of a sudden, yeah. Um, I mean, it's. Really good. I mean, if you look at In and Out, right? Yeah, they're essentially making a smash burger. They're not physically smashing the burger, uh, but they're making a really, really thin patty, right? Yeah. So the only difference, like, if you're going to ask me, what's the difference between a, a In and Out burger and a smash burger? In In and Out burger starts as a thin patty, and a smash burger ends up as a thin patty. A smash burger starts as a ball, and which you physically smash. smash. Yeah. Um. But I think just that style of like backyard pool party barbecue California um, I mean that's like the burgers that, that that we make right now uh, for these smash burgers it just I'm trying to make like a backyard dad burger mmm they're delicious yeah no I've heard um, you know you're the one who turned me on to Golden Tiger yeah which is uh, one of my favorite spots in Austin it was one of the first spots that we found when we got here um, that was open late and fucking good. Yeah. And um, I started eating it like four nights a week. That's not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. Um, but uh, but I did. And um, it was one of those things that like I was telling everyone I could because it was that good. One of the things that she- it's cool being friends with chefs is they know the spots. Like what other good late night spots are there in Austin? Um, so... Our go-to late nights would be uh, Golden Tiger, for sure. Um, we'd go to a place called Halal Time. Have you been there yet? No. It's on 6th Street, um, East 6th. It is, like, got to be one of the best Euros ever. Really? It's so fucking good. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else we would do late night. What about pizza? What's the best pizza spot in this town? I'm torn between two. Uh, Love Supreme, which if you haven't been to, you have to go. I have not been to. Very, very good. Uh, and Doughboys. Doughboys. Yeah. And Love Supreme. Yeah. Love Supreme sounds better. They're different. They're different styles, but they're both really, really good. What kind of, what is Love Supreme? Um, I don't even know how to describe the styles. Um, so uh, Love Supreme is a little bit more like... Are you, are you pulling it up? Oh boy, that looks fucking good. Yeah, Love Supreme is like uh, it's it's more of a restaurant. It's like a great family style place that you would go with the kids and have like just a really good like restaurant pizza. Doughboys is a little truck. I'm writing this down. Yeah, I got to put this in the phone because uh, I'm always looking for like a best pizza spot in town. It's very good. Full disclosure, uh, the chef there, uh, Russell, is uh, he and I go way back. Well, I don't think you would lie. No. <laughs> you have to have a full disclosure. That looks fucking good. Now, is uh, love is that Doughboys? Mm-hmm. Now, how important is wood fire to a pizza or in yes. general to a pizza? Because it's think, always like a thing. You know, I think wood you can. Fire. That goddamn doughboys, yeah. that pepperoni. That looks fuck. really good. I, I'd, uh, you get into I'm that? Have to order that fuck sushi, too. right? <laughs> well, yeah. You're all about that. 
Jamie's all about Doughboys, pepperoni. I've been that, looking for a good pizza place. Here. That looks fucking bomb diggity. Yeah. I, I mean, Doughboys is in the back of Meanwhile Brewery. So uh, they've got some great beers, and that's a cool place. Just go kind of hang out on a picnic bench. And, uh, I'm sorry, what's the name of the place? The uh, Meanwhile Brewery. Meanwhile Brewery. Yeah. Wait, click on that pizza right to the left of that one, man, the, with the little veggies on it. We'll, we'll drop down. Down, yeah. Yeah, look at that. Oh, that looks good. That looks fucking good. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm on this uh, animal-based diet for all of January, so all I'm eating all January is meat and a little bit of fruit. And so I see pizza, and it calls to me. Yeah. You know? Like, that's what I'm doing February 1st. I'm going to fuck up a pizza. Call me. I'll go with you. Pizza okay, February. let's do it, bro. Yeah. What's that, Jamie? All pizza February? Maybe. All pizza February. See how fat I get? Mm. I will look like a beach ball. My so, face will- Dirty ball. My face will go like this. My stomach will distend. It will be a real issue. How's that going with the- Great. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I added fruit this year. It changed uh, everything. First of all, it stopped the diarrhea in its tracks, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> before when I've done nothing but meat. It's I don't know what it is. It just gives you ferocious diarrhea, like oil spill diarrhea, like somebody broke a pipeline. <laughs> Not good. Man, maybe that's uh, how you lose weight. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that's how you lose. <laughs> I don't think that's wise. Uh, I think you're just losing weight from the lack of calories. I mean, it's a pretty simple equation, right? But th for me, um, one of the things that comes with eating this is I, I'm eliminating all the bullshit, right? I'm eliminating a lot of the processed foods and yeah. sugar. And that's really what's wrong about most people's diet. It's, uh, it's overconsumption, which I'm a massive I, – I, I have a giant problem with eating too much. Like, for instance – I went to Golden Tiger and I ordered three cheeseburgers and a Thai chicken sandwich. I ate three double cheeseburgers, by the way, and a Thai chicken sandwich. And people are like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm hungry. I can, yeah, that's a lot. I eat a lot of food, man. It's a real problem. But I work out a lot. Yeah. But because I work out a lot, I get really hungry. And then by the time I get to somewhere to eat, I'm like frantic hungry. See, I can see that because I just recently started like – Working out, getting in shape. I noticed and the whoop. You got the whoop strap rocking. I do. I do. Yeah, it's uh, changed my life really. Um, but I've noticed that now that I'm like running a lot and exercising a lot, I get way hungrier. Oh yeah, for sure. And I lose weight even though I eat more. Yeah. Well, you know, your body has requirements when you're working out. Yeah. You know, it's just sustenance when you're not working out. But when you're working out, your body's like, get me some fucking protein. Let's go. Yeah. Because you know your your body recognizes you're breaking down all this tissue and you're. I mean, that's the process of exercise. It's the breaking down, the building back up stronger. And it's like this, you got to do it right. Too many people start off too hard. You know, they, like when, when someone has not worked out at all before, I always say, listen, all you have to do is go walk around the block and do some push-ups and some jumping jacks and then build from there. You don't have to go crazy. Yeah. Like let your body get accustomed to this whole idea of exercise. Don't just go bananas because you won't be able to sustain it and you'll get upset. And don't work out with a friend who goes to CrossFit. <laughs> don't have some fucking fitness fanatic friend who's like, try to do this wad. We're going to do a wad today. And you're, you're, you're doing burpees and throwing fucking kettlebells over your head. You're not going to do it. Yeah, I know. That's, and you'll get hurt. I've pretty much just done been running. Really? That's great. Yeah, I'm up to doing about five miles a day every day. Nice. Yeah. That's great. I just get on, I hit the five mile an hour button, I do one hour. So you weren't doing anything before? No, I work so much. 
Mm. So um, I was doing nothing. And I went from having such an active like childhood of, of like drumming seven days a week. Um, and back then I would, I'd need three double doubles, you know, just to keep my weight on. And um, to just working so much, I'm on my feet all day, but I'm not sweating right. all day. You're not exerting high, no. high heart rate. And so I was having trouble sleeping and uh, um, uh, actually a buddy of mine uh, got me onto the whoop. And um, then I had a couple conversations with you about just like trying to feel better. And uh, I really started like, I started off really slow and I sort of got into it. And then I went to um, uh, a doc the doctor just to get a physical. And I found out that I have like, or I had scary high cholesterol. They were like, you're at, you know, you're, they told me I'm pre-diabetic and I'm at, you know, I'm at risk of having a heart attack Jesus within the next couple Christ. of years. Um, and uh, I need to do something. And so... I did a, you know, did a little bit of research on my own, and one of the things was like getting yourself into, I think it's seventy to eighty percent of your max heart rate for over thirty minutes, mm. and so um, I completely changed my diet. I changed like just my lifestyle. So every day I'm running and uh, eating differently, and I've lost about thirty pounds, and I've dropped about seventy points of my my uh, cholesterol. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did you change? How much did you change your diet at all? Completely. Yeah? Yeah. What, what did you change? What was the big thing? Well, I, I've cut out entirely dairy and red meat. No red meat? No red meat. Well, that's not true. I know nothing, it's not true. Nothing. You sent me a video of you <laughs> cooking a red stag, you lying son of a bitch. <laughs> Jeez. No saturated fat. No meat with high saturated fats. So I was eating a lot of, like, I mean, just because I have access to it. I was eating a lot of Wagyu beef. I was eating, yeah. eating a lot of foie gras. I was eating a lot of, uh, you know, ribeyes. Uh, if I was hungry, I'd eat, you know, salamis. Um, and I've just sort of transitioned that out for now if I'm hungry, I eat nuts. Um, eating a lot of like uh, of turkey and chicken. Um, turns out sushi is actually really good for battling high LDL cholesterol. Really? Yeah. So um, I've eaten, I always eat a ton of sushi, uh, but eating a lot of fish. Uh, I never really ate a lot of like, um, I don't eat I don't eat candies. I don't eat a lot of sugars. I don't drink soda, um, so I didn't have to change any of that. I don't eat a lot of breads. Um, how much do you attribute what the change is to your diet, and how much do you attribute it to the increase in exercise? I think that hitting it from both ends, like when when I went back for my first checkup with the doctor, she was expecting to see like maybe twenty points drop off, and I dropped mm -hmm. off seventy. Oh wow! So I think it was hitting it from both ends. Yeah, I got my blood uh, work done, and my doctor asked me if I'm on medication, low cholesterol medication. I said, I eat mostly meat. Yeah. And they were like, what? Like, how is that? What's going on? Yeah, I, I think I was so far over that I was like, I have to just stop cold turkey. I have to reset my body, and then I'm like, I, I definitely yeah. plan on returning to eating steaks. Well, what I was going to get to is I think it's literally a matter of what – you know, we all want to think of this one-size-fits-all dietary approach. We, we want to think about that with everything, really. But it doesn't work that way. There's people that require so much more of their body that they need a mm -hmm. different kind of fuel source. They need more fuel. They need di in, in, in a different way. And I think that a person that is on their feet all day, like you are, uh, working as a chef, there's a requirement it's probably pretty high, but 
like a caloric requirement, but there's also not an exertion. Yeah. So like you have like this steady, you're using up calories all day long, but you're never ramping up your heart rate. Mm-hmm. You're never like pushing your body. So it's it's got to be weird for your body. Your body's like, what is this motherfucker doing? Like, why are we awake all day? And why are we, why are we like just standing up? Yeah, it's, um, I definitely have, I have so much more energy now. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Now, I mean, like you pointed out the whoop, I'm legitimately obsessed. I wake up every day and the first you thing check I- your recovery? Every day. And, and I, 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 I also try as much as I can every day to get my strain exactly where, so when I look at the little graph, my strain and my and my recovery like match up. Mm, interesting. Now, what about supplements? Are you doing anything to supplement your diet with nutrients? Uh, I take a bunch of vitamins and stuff in the morning, but no specific supplements because I am, you know, I'm still eating. Uh, I'm still eating protein every like every night. I'm either eating, you know, I'm either eating fish or turkey or chicken or something. Well, that's what I mean by vitamins. I mean by yeah. supplements. I mean vitamins. Yeah. Like you just. Um, just normal stuff like multivitamins, fish oil. Like, what do you? What yeah. Are you taking? So my my morning regimen is I take uh, like a about a, probably about probably about one ounce of uh, apple cider vinegar in a in a tall glass of water, and then a little shot of elderberry syrup, and then uh, a uh, multivitamin, and then what about a, food? What about food? Are you eating this with food? No. That's a problem. Um, you need fat. And you need some sort of carbohydrate to bind with the vitamins. When you're taking vitamins and you're not taking vitamins with any food, your body's like, what is this? Your body has no idea what it is. Your body's super confused and probably is going to piss most of it out. Interesting. If you want to get maximum absorption of your, your vitamins, you must take it with food. All right. Yeah, because otherwise, why would you have these vitamins? Like, your body doesn't understand that. Your body understands vitamins in the context of something else. Fiber, fat, carbohydrates. Your body doesn't understand, like, a fistful of vitamins in water. It's like, what is this bullshit? Vitamins are supposed to be bound to nutrients or or to food. So, like, in the future. All right. Well, I'll start tomorrow. Yeah, you got to take it with food. Yeah, I have not taken vitamins today at yeah. all because I haven't eaten today. Interesting. So I work out I've most been... of the time fasted, and um, I, you know, the the one thing that I will have though is I'll have vitamins that come with um, liquid IV. Liquid mm-hmm. IV is a supplement that I take. I just pour it into a, a I've jug of water. I've been obsessed with it for a while. It's great stuff. Yeah, but it has glucose in it, so there's some absorption of vitamins that goes yeah. along with, and they've you know, they've got this down to a science the way they do it, but. When I take actual supplements, my supplements are always with food. And you should do that too. Everyone should do that. If you're taking vitamins without food, you're, the amount of absorption you get is very minimal. Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. The only way you could bypass that is IVs. You could do IV vitamin drips. Yeah, I don't want to do that. You're going, it's great. <laughs> It's really great. It's about one of the best ways to get like, if you're sick, I highly recommend it. If you ever get like a really bad cold, high dose vitamin C, D, zinc, glutathione, IV uh, drips are fantastic. It's really, cause it'll go, it's going right into your bloodstream. It bypasses, you know, your stomach, your liver, all that jazz. It's going right into the system. Interesting. Yeah. So all that vitamins you're taking, <laughs> being all that healthy. I mean, just, you're probably getting a little bit of carbohydrates with the elderberry syrup. There's something in there. 
you know? then I, and then I, what else? I'm doing uh, taking a zinc and uh, omega three. If you take a zinc, you should take a zinc with an ionophore. Ionophores are things like quercetin. Um, there's some other stuff too. I think that works in a similar way. I think curcumin works in a similar way, which is uh, one element of turmeric. And um, what you're gonna, or or vice versa. But what you're gonna, uh, what an ionophore is, it helps the ions get directly into the cells. So zinc is notoriously difficult for people to just take as a supplement and have it absorbed into your cells. So they recommend taking it with uh, quercetin. All right. Well, we're going to have to talk about this afterwards. Yeah, take notes on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, I'm just getting this from doctors, too. It's not like, you know, I didn't know all this. No, but I appreciate it because that's the thing is this whole little journey for me has been, you know, kind of a little bit of trial and error. And how long has this been going on now? Uh, since I found, since I, I mean, finding out the cholesterol thing was like really the big, a big motivator. Um, so probably about three months, mm, three and a half amazing. months. That's amazing. So yeah. three months, you're up to a five mile a day journey. That's really great. Yeah. The thing about a treadmill, a lot of people don't, oh, I'd rather run outside. Me too. Sure. Absolutely. Like when I lived in California, I always, oh, cause it was hills. There's yeah. Not, not a lot of hills on here. But the thing about a treadmill is you could do other shit. Yeah, like you watch a fucking movie, and, and then, that's that's been my thing. Is I'll put on a podcast, or if I'm a, if I get into a new series, I'll just watch a one hour episode yeah. while I'm running. Amazing. Um, and uh, no, it's been, I, you know, I tried running outside. That's how I started first. Is like I was walking around. We have this little loop by our house, so I would I would walk it, and then after a couple of weeks, I was like, you know, I'm gonna walk it twice, and then it was like I'm gonna jog it, and then I tried running it, and then my knees and my back and everything just hurt so bad um and then i was like but i really want to so i got a treadmill do you know how to run correctly i do now (laughs) (laughs) is that what was messing your knees up were you heel striking i don't know i don't know what you call it but the the worst pain i got from from running is so i i once i like mastered the five mile an hour thing i tried pushing myself one day and i was doing i think i did i tried to do the full hour at six and a half miles and um, my neck and my my shoulders and my like upper back were in like excruciating pain. And I Googled, you know, what that's from. And it's just from literally running with like your shoulders up. So when I was like trying to run faster, my shoulders would, would slowly uh. creep up. And what it explained is that each run is a single rep. So you're doing thousands and thousands of reps with bad form and you're just wrecking yourself. Oh, so um, it showed me some like foam roller thing, like how to like, you know, fix that. And it did um, like fix my, my back and my neck. And then now I just practice like as I'm running, I am consciously putting my shoulders back and down mm. as I'm running. Trying to relax. And, yeah. In good form. Are you landing on the ball of your feet? Uh, probably. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like doing that on the floor, be, and I don't know. You should be cognizant of that. Yeah. It's really a fascinating thing that happened. But Nike, I believe it was Nike, came out with the very first running shoe with a fat heel. And in doing so, they encouraged people to heel strike. They encouraged people to run and land on your heel, and they offered you this big cushion. But in doing that, they completely changed, like, hundreds of thousands of years of biomechanics of people walking and running. You're not supposed to land on your heel like that. I mean, you can a little bit, but you're not supposed to do that consistently and constantly. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not running like this. Yeah. But I, I, th- I don't think I 
keep I don't think my heel like stays up the whole time. Well, if you look at like a pair of running shoes, yeah. the, the heels are always big and fat and yeah. then it narrows down towards the front, mm-hmm. which would encourage you to run and land on the heel cuz yeah. that's where all the cushion is. And they fucked so many people's feet up and knees up and everything from doing that. It's really like you talk to like people that are experts in biomechanics and people that are experts in running. They're like, this is the worst fucking thing you could do. Like you're supposed to, your foot is a natural decelerator. Like when you're landing on the, the ball of your foot, your, your foot slowly lets itself down with the muscles of your calf and your lower leg. And that's how you're supposed to land. Like your, your foot's a built-in shock absorber. It's really amazing design. And Nike's like, eh, let's use foam. Let's just fucking <laughs> land on the heel where there's no give at all and use foam. And a lot of people jacked up their knees, running, especially people that weren't conditioned to it. And then they said, you know, that's, a, that's the thing that people do. Like I, I was saying about someone, if you don't exercise at all, and you go with a friend to CrossFit. Like, no, you have to build up to something like that. You want to do some shit like that? You got to get your tissue prepared. Like, slowly over time, build your tendon strength and your muscle strength and your endurance so that you don't drop a weight on your head. Like, all that stuff is oh, yeah. like, you got to do it slowly. But when someone would get like a pair of running shoes, like, I'm going to run a marathon. <laughs> like, you fuck. hurt yourself. Oh my God, you could hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you could definitely hurt yourself. Yeah, no, I got I got these shoes that are, you know, they're just uh, some sort of, you know, Scandinavian design that's supposed to like uh, accelerate you or something like that. And mm. works. I used to run with toe shoes, those flat ass, you know, those Vibrams. Yeah. There, there's no cushion at all. It's, it, and, Doing the research about how to like what I was doing wrong, it said that you should have the most uncomfortable shoes. Like the the more you can pretty much replicate running on just your bare feet is mm. the better your form will be and the better runner you'll become. It helped me. It it, it really the running with those barefoot shoes, and I, I went from those to some other kind because what what the problem was I was running on trails, and so there was a lot of rocks. Yeah, and like I would just occasionally like step on a rock and you can actually injure your foot because yeah. you know some of them they're pokey and so then I, I switched to more of a minimalist shoe but still a flat you know wide toe box shoe that allows your feet to articulate the way it was described i forget who described it this way but they said essentially when you look at most shoes they are like a cast mm-hmm. and that is not how your foot is supposed to behave and when you put your arm in a cast what happens it atrophies yeah and that's the thing with your foot you put your foot in this cast and your foot doesn't get to utilize all of the muscles that surround the bones and stabilize the foot interesting yeah makes sense yeah it does make sense well one of the things that was shocking to me i started doing yoga in uh, a few years ago many many years ago now but when i first started doing yoga the first thing that would hurt was my feet i was like this is great like why are my feet hurt because i'm a martial artist so i'm used to like kickboxing and moving yeah. around but i was used to a very specific kind of movement on my feet but like this static holding a pose mm-hmm. and using your foot to kind of balance yeah. and stabilize you. I was utilizing all of these muscles in my foot that I that were not strong because I was just used to these explosive movements back and yeah. forth. Whereas yoga, like if you're standing there and you got your one foot up in the air like this <laughs> and you, your foot is balancing everything and it's like all the stabilizing muscles were very weak. It took a while to get accustomed to that. Yep. My wife was into yoga for a long time. I've tried it a few times. I actually want to get into it now. Well, we're putting a yoga studio, a private yoga studio, right next door. 
Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we got a gym that we're building, and one of the things we're building in the gym is a yoga room. So come on down, Fuck yeah. bro. <laughs> come on down. We're gonna take you through some classes. Mm. But my my message to people that like are in your sort of situation, or not your situation now, but your situation back then, were like, how do I get started? Like, please go slow. Yeah. Just, just go slow. Well, like, when you don't I, have to get crazy. When I first started, because Margarita, she's been. Um, She's been active and she's been uh, exercising. She wakes up every morning at like five, six o'clock in the morning for our, the the, dura- the duration of our entire relationship. She's been getting up super early, exercising, running, uh, Do you feel doing yoga. When you're sleeping in? No, not at all. You never felt guilty. No. She's out there running. You're like, not at all. I feel great about it. Well, I felt <laughs> great. I felt great about it. Um, but uh, uh, when I first, you know, I think it was like March of last year, I was like, all right, because I've been talking about like, okay, I'm going to get in shape for years because um, I used, I was always in shape. And then all of a sudden I just looked down one day and I was like, I weigh 30 pounds more than I am supposed to. Mm. And um, when I first started, I was like, all right, I'm going to start today. And I did like, I think it was like 20 jumping jacks, like three push ups and like 10 sit ups. And she's like, that's it. And I was like, yes. She's like, that's not a workout. And I was like, if I hurt myself and I go too fast, I'm going to stop. So I'm going to do whatever's easy for me until it becomes boring easy. And then I'm just going to keep adding on a little bit. That's smart that you had that systematic approach. Like, how did you figure that out? Because that's kind of the key to anything in life. If you Mm. hurt yourself on it, then you don't want to do it again. Yeah. If you burn yourself on it, you don't want to keep doing it. So it's like, and you want to do things you're good at. So do the amount that you know you can kill. And then when that becomes just like boring easy, make it a little bit harder. You know, it's the thing like everybody wants to just run at it like and just get especially when you realize you've got an issue. Everybody just wants to just, okay, I'm going to resolve that. And the way I'm going to do, I'm just going to push really hard. And I'm going to but it's not sustainable. And you I, won't. I've always been that guy. But you always hurt yourself. Or yeah. You always, you know, it, and it's just not the right way to do it. Yeah. It's uh, it's very wise of you. That's that's interesting, because most people don't, and most people start out and they'll they'll do something difficult, and they'll be really sore the next day, and then maybe they'll take a day off, and then they'll do half ass the day after that because they don't want to be a sore, and then yeah. they quit. Yeah, <laughs> or and, something along those lines. And if you hurt yourself that bad, you're like, fuck. Why would I ever do that? It yeah. hurts so bad. Yeah, I wish it was more common. You know, I, I really do. When when I look at the obesity rates in this country and I look at the amount of people that are living these like, essentially constant sedentary lifestyle like this, they're, they're never doing anything physical. That's yeah. like a giant percentage of our population. And they're very insecure about it. You know, and because of that, they don't want you to fat shame and they're this body, body positivity nonsense like that's crazy. It's, it's all crazy. It's all it's you're you're missing the point. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable. The whole idea about being fat and the reason why you're upset that people point out that you're fat is because you're supposed to do something about it. You're supposed to feel bad. When someone points something out about you being fat, if it's true, it's supposed to feel like shit. And uh, it sucks that it feels like shit. But that, in turn, is supposed to motivate you to do something about it. You know, I think whatever it takes to motivate yourself um i mean it's it's interesting because you also could fall victim of not living a sedentary lifestyle and being on your feet 15 hours a day and still being incredibly out of shape especially if your diet's bad yeah yeah 
well, when it's full of booze and, you know, cheeseburgers at two o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The comedian lifestyle and the chef lifestyle in, yeah. that, in that sense, probably very similar. Now, when, when you um, did this change, did you just immediately cut all that stuff out of your diet? Or did you like sort of slowly do that as well as the diet or as the exercise thing? I'm a cold turkey guy, and mm. I know that about myself. Um, and I'm, you know, I haven't even had a slice of steak. I can't. I'm wow. like, I'm like an alcoholic with food. If I take that one bite, I'll start eating it again. Where did that term cold turkey come from? I don't know. We all know what it is. Yeah. But we don't think of it as turkey. No, I have no idea where it came from. Yeah, what is that? We'll find out shortly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird term, right? It's not cold spinach. No, I wonder it's if it's turkey. like... Do vegans use the term cold turkey? Doesn't hurt anybody. I quit meat cold turkey. That sounds weird. Could be. You know? Well, it depends what the, or the origination is. Right, maybe. but if you're like, how do I get into veganism? Well, I quit meat cold turkey. You could just say I quit cold turkey. Yeah, but if, if you say I quit cold turkey... what? Is then you it? stopped eating cold turkey. Yes. <laughs> Merriam-Webster doesn't even have a real answer. They just have theories. Oh, what's their theories? Eh. They're, they I mean, suck? They're okay. Let's you can check it. out. But why turkey? And why cold? Hmm. But why turkey? And why cold? The most popular theory was repeated in the San Francisco Chron Chronicle columnist Herb Cain, C-A-E-N, Cain, in 1978. It derives from the hideous combination of goose pimples and what William Burroughs calls the cold burn that addicts suffer when they kick the habit. Oh, interesting. So it'd be like, for example, if you just cut out doing drugs and you got, like, and something happened to your skin? Yeah, but here's the thing. It says the problem with both these theories is that they ignore the use of cold turkey before its application to drug addiction. In a cartoon that appeared in newspapers in November 12th of 1920, Ace slang man Thomas Tad Dorgan used cold turkey this way. Now tell me on the square, can I get by this for the wedding? Don't string me. Tell me cold turkey. Wow. Boy, people talk weird in the 20s. <laughs> the fuck is wrong with these people? The editors of the Historical Dictionary of American Slang have found an earlier usage, 1910 usage, where the speaker lost $5,000 cold turkey. In the sense of losing it outright. Huh. Huh. Cold being straightforward or matter of fact and the earlier talk turkey. Oh, right. Like talk turkey. Like you jive turkey. That was a thing. Like people would call people a jive turkey. <laughs> right? Isn't that weird? You jive ass turkey. I'm going to start bringing that back. Drive ass turkey, Jamie. Fucking jive ass turkey. <laughs> what? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> what a strange thing to call someone a jive turkey. What is jive even? What does that even mean? Let's Google jive, right? Jive ass turkey. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even. I've never thought about that. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Unreliable. Oh, unreliable. or empty promises. Oh, you empty promise in turkey. <laughs> unreliable turkey. <laughs> Turkey's a strange food because it's not that good. It can be good. It's okay. It can be good. It's all right. It's not like... Uh, venison it's not like a ribeye it's not no but you can make it really you can good. make it pretty good it can be pretty good let's be honest there's a reason why it's not on most menus yeah it's not as easy to 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 make as good as a ribeye you can't it's not possible well a ribeye you have to just not fuck up right. a ribeye you or a turkey you have to actually cook with finesse 
What do you do? Like if you're doing a Thanksgiving turkey, are you a so, boil and peanut oil guy? No, no, no. So I, I did I did a Thanksgiving turkey this year. Ah. Um, and uh, so what I did is it's similar to what I do for my uh, whole pigs. And um, I took, uh, just did it in a big, in a big trash bag uh, overnight the day before. I take uh, lemons, limes, oranges, both the zest and the juices, uh, uh, melted butter, when you say the zest in the juices, you mean like you take like grate, a microplane and yeah, you grate just you grate the, the outside, the yeah. skin. A um, uh, bunch of chopped onions, a bunch of uh, herbs, and I basically like put like rub it all on inside, outside, everything. Um, tie it up, put it in a cooler, leave it out at room temperature overnight. Room temperature. Yeah. Why? Uh, because so when you cook something, you want the internal temperature to cook at the same. Uh, uh, rate as the external temperature. That's why people cook sous vide, right? Sure. Um, and if you just take a turkey out of the fridge and you put it in the oven, or you leave it out for an hour and put it in the oven, it's still ice cold in the in the in the interior. How long does it take for a turkey to get to room temperature? I'm gonna. I mean, it probably overnight. I mean, it's not even. Okay. I mean, it's not even completely. And here's the thing: once it gets to room temperature, even according to the health department, you have four hours. Mm. But you have a lot longer than that. So what you're doing is just making, taking into account the fact that it's been refrigerated. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm removing the refrigeration from right, it right. so that when I put it in the oven, it immediately starts cooking from, from the inside out, not from the outside in. Right, right. So like you, you know, everyone's seen that like the quintessential steak where it's the, it's the slice and it's like well done, medium well, medium, medium rare, and then rare right in the center. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's a terrible steak. If you order a medium rare, you don't want 10% of it to be medium rare. It should be medium rare top to bottom. Some people like that, though. I've, I've talked to people that like like a nice, crispy, sort of a crust on the outside. But you can get a crust on the outside and still retain what we call a gradient, a very low gradient. So you have... What I was going to say is some people like the rare on the inside, but like the combination of those two textures, like the sear on the outside, but a rare on the inside. No, and that's not what I'm, I'm saying. You can achieve that, but that if you want it to be that rare, then so if you've got a piece of meat like this, right? And here's your visually cut. for people that are listening, rather. Yeah. So so top to bottom, right? You're going to have your crust on the top and the bottom, and when you cut it, the very center is what would be the least cooked, right? Because right. the temp the the ambient temperature is coming from the unless exterior, unless you sous vide it. Unless you sous vide it. But there are ways to cook it so that the internal temperature from center to call it sear or crust, is the same temperature. So if you want a rare steak, you can still get a nice crust on the outside, the exterior, and still have a properly cooked interior. Do you think that a steak that's cooked like sous vide style, like say if you wanted it to an internal of say 130, 135 degrees, what do you like for an internal of a steak? Temperature-wise? Yeah, temperature-wise. I don't go off temperature. You don't? Mm -mm. If, if you had a guess? Like, what do you think would be, if you're going to sous vide a steak, what would you put it at? I wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> but if you were but going to. But if you had to, to yeah. uh, a ribeye? Yeah. Mm, well, let me ask you this. When it comes out of the sous vide, am I slicing it, kneading it? Am I resting it and then grilling it? What am I doing with it? I would, I don't know. I mean, that's what I was going to get to. Some people like to blowtorch the outside of it. They like to uh, get it to an internal. I'm not saying this mm -hmm. is correct, obviously. 
Um, but they like to get it to an internal of like uh, 125 or 130, whatever they like, and then they blowtorch the outside of it. I have seen chefs do this before. Mm-hmm. You, what is wrong with that process? There's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. Um, why do you not like it that way? Well, the, I mean, so Scratch Bar and Kitchen, which is the first restaurant Marguerite and I opened um, in 2013, uh, we have a, I think it's 11 foot wide, big fireplace hearth. And that's where we cook everything. Um, and so for the past, you know, almost decade, uh, we've just cooked with fire. And um, I, I do use blow torches um, for specific things. But typically, if I was going, like, if you're gonna ask me what's the best way to cook a steak, is it in a sous vide and finished with a with a with a blowtorch? The answer is absolutely not. Um, is it a comparable way? Sure, especially if you're in an apartment kitchen, right? It, it all depends on what you have at your disposal. If you don't have a big fireplace to cook it in, then that's going to be too difficult. Um, but I think to to try to answer your question at least, uh, I'd probably go for something around 127. Uh, with with the intent to rest it properly and then finish it on in, on some sort of fire. So if I have if I have an actual live fire, then I would finish it in the flames. And if you have no other way to sear it, then a blowtorch, I guess, would do. What about cast iron, like cast iron frying pan to sear it at the end? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't like sous vide steaks. I don't like the texture that it achieves. Um, what is different about it? Uh. Gives it, again, it, it can be done properly, but typically, like, when you order, if I order steak at a restaurant and it is sous vide, I'm going to go, oh, that's, they, they sous vide this. Um, it just has a bit of, like, almost like rubberization that happens. Um, to me, like, you need to get the, the, the actual proteins to a certain temperature to coagulate to actually like whenever anyone was like, Oh, bring me a ribeye, like, you know, bloody. That's not very good. You need like, you either need to eat it raw or you need to cook it enough where the proteins have coagulated enough that when you chew through it, it snaps and you can chew through it. You know, if you've ever had like a really undercooked ribeye, it's become stringy. Mm. You have an overcooked ribeye. It's tough. You have a properly cooked ribeye. It's melt in your mouth. And it's all about finding the correct temperature. So each steak is going to, each cut is going to have a different temperature that you're trying to achieve. Now, are there any meats that are superior when you cook them in sous vide? Uh, a short rib. I think a short rib. Why is that? Because it's got all the collagen and all the other yeah, stuff. Yeah. So typically, I mean, the, the most, the most classic way to cook a short rib is going to be uh, braised, right? And when you're cooking it in the braise, you're, it's releasing the fat into the braising liquids, which you're going to turn into your sauce later. Um, but you're basically not not bringing it to a boil, but you're cooking it under in inside of liquid. You also can only cook it to a certain, you know, you cook it for a couple of hours. But when you sous vide it, we had actually one on the menu um, for for quite a while, and we would cook it for three days. And we cook it at a low enough three days. Yeah, so we'd cook it at a low enough temperature that when you sliced into it, it was still pink, so it was medium rare. But all of that fat had completely not just broken down, but then it had been redistributed throughout the entire thing. So when you sliced into it, it was it had the texture of almost like a ribeye, in the sense that it uh, it, it it held together. It wasn't like a fall apart stew. Mm. And what temperature were we cooking at it for three days? 
I can't remember. That's written down somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, how do you prefer to cook meat? What, and you, you prefer fire. Yeah, so the the best way that I have found, and again, everything is different. You know, it, we it's, at Scratch Bar, we just do a tasting menu. That's the only, your only option is a 25-course tasting menu. And what we would do is we, we use Japanese Wagyu, and when guests would arrive, um, and you'd arrive actually uh, into another room where you'd have, like, welcome cocktails and, and canapes before you come into the kitchen for dinner, we would be notified when you came in, and immediately we would take your portion of meat out of uh, the fridge, and we would put it above the hearth, where it was about 90 degrees ambient temperature, roughly, and it was getting a little bit of smoke. Um, and then about four or five courses before your steak course, which is probably about 45 minutes later, 45 minutes, an hour later, we would bring the piece out that was and, and present it to you so you could see it, and it would be completely malleable. The, it was like it was shiny. The fats had already started to render, and we would explain that what we're going to do now. We, you know, it's been sitting up here for the last hour. Now we're going to put it closer to the flames, where it's about 115 degrees ambient temperature. But we're not going to cook it yet. That'll be for the next two courses. It'll sit there, and then uh, right before that course, we would actually take the uh, the the steak and put it into the flame. And what would happen is it would actually uh, start to fry itself from the inside out. Why from the inside out? So the the internal temp, the entire piece of meat had become about 118 degrees, just from sitting, just from sit, just from from being that close to the, just being in that environment, and because of the fat content of the Japanese wagyu, uh, it had so much fat all over it and inside of it that when it went into the flame and it heated up at such a at such a high uh, rate, it would actually cause all that fat to start to fry. Well, but. I wasn't isn't the outside still hotter than the inside because you're, you're, you're yeah but but the fat would the fat would uh, conduct the heat and it would I mean technically probably the outside I mean yes that the, the exterior would also get a bit of a crust where the interior wouldn't because it actually touched the flame so how's it doing it from the inside out then so if it's if, so if you've got the piece of meat right and you've got a, let's just a flame here and you go into that flame that flame is going to touch the exterior, right? It's going to heat up. It's going to touch the, the that heat is going to transfer to the fat, and that fat is going all the way through the piece of meat. Mm. So it's actually going to be like the interior uh, fat is going to be up to a certain temperature that will cause it to fry. So when we pull it out of the flame, it's actually going to be, the entire thing is going to be sizzling as if it looks like it's been fried. So is this a strategy that you would use only for Wagyu because it has that high fat content? Uh, that specific thing, yeah. Um, but it also, like, I, I did a very, the thing I sent you with the venison, mm -hmm. did a very similar thing, um, even though it doesn't have that, that fat content. And that was Red Stag. Did you get that from Texas? Is that? Yeah, from, um, I think they're called Hudson Meat Market. Uh, I, I basically called around for, uh, um, trying to find who has, like, local venison. It's one of the best things about Texas is that you can get specifically exotics. You can buy them commercially. Like, Neil Guy is very mm -hmm. popular out here, which is an Indian animal. It's an, a large elk-sized... They're weird-looking. Have you ever seen one on the hoof? Not in person. I've seen a picture. Yeah, I haven't either. Well, no, no, I did once. Yeah, no, I saw one at a ranch in Texas. But I saw him briefly. Like, he, like, ran through this... Uh, this trail that we were on and I was like look at that fucking thing. It was kind of blue. They're weird looking. Yeah. You can pull up a Neil guy so people can Don't get they have a, tiny little heads or tiny, tiny little horns, something? Yeah. Tiny antlers. But look, they're kind of like blue. 
Like, look how weird that thing looks. <laughs> it's so strange looking. It's almost like a, like a fake animal, you know? Like, and they, the males in particular, I think all of them have antlers. It looks like some sort of crossbreed between like a, like a zebra and I don't even know what else. Well, it's a very unusual animal and really delicious. There's a, have you eaten a Dai Due yet? Yeah. Did you like it? I loved it. It's great. Yeah. I have you there- met Jesse? I haven't. Jesse Griffiths, who's been on the podcast before too, is fantastic. I might have met. So I, I ate there 2013, 14, oh. something like that. Jesse has a school where he teaches people how to hunt, how to butcher, and how to cook, and takes people with zero experience. And one of the things that he really loves is hogs. He takes people to hunt wild hogs, first of all, because they're uh, a plentiful resource in Texas in particular, you must kill them because they are invasive and they're, they're overpopulated. There's so many of them, they destroy agriculture. And so it's an easy animal to gain access to hunt. It's very prevalent. It's an easy hunt. And especially when you're shooting rifles, your, your, your success rate is very high. And then on top of that, Jesse will show them how to break it down. What is his, um, can you see what it's old school cookery i forget the name of his school but he takes you through the entire process and it's a very small amount of people that are allowed to attend because here it is the new new school School of traditional cookery that's it the new school of traditional cookery is founded in 2006 uh, concurrently with Dai Due Supper Club to provide an educational aspect of our business that promotes responsible use of our wild resources. Jesse's awesome. I'm such a huge fan of that guy and his whole strategy. Like, here, click on that to show Jesse uh, cooking a full board. Go full screen. Let's see this. very meat-focused, but it's what the region has to offer, and it changes. He's uh, also a giant fan of cooking over fire. Like everything he does is over, uh, uh, I think he uses post oak for the most part. Well, once you start doing that, you kind of, you fall in love with it and you kind of can't go back. It's a real issue for me. It's become a problem (laughs) because it takes so much fucking time. You know, like cooking over um, like fire is whatever the fuck it is in your caveman brain that gets excited about grilling gets excited 10% more. Oh, yeah. It, or more than that, maybe, by cooking over actual hardwood. And well, I don't know why that is. When, when we first opened, when we moved, well, when we when we opened Scratch Bar in its current location where we got the hearth, um, the reason I decided to, to, to go completely uh, wood fire only, I mean, there's no other cooking apparatus in the kitchen, was because I wanted young cooks to have to learn how to control their environment. Um, I felt like there was a lot of, you know, when you're learning to cook or you're working a station as a young cook, it's like, all right, go to go to high heat and then go down to medium heat, you know, go here for this long and then do that and then do this. And I felt like it would be really interesting to just have, like, them have to learn how to, you know, if you let your, di- your fire die down, you're, you're fucked. You're completely fucked. You know, we, when we opened the rest the the restaurant, we had a we had a pasta on the menu, and you have to boil water in, on an open fire, and you can't just like crank it by turning it up. You have to keep your fire going, mm. and um, so that was kind of the idea. And, and once you really start cooking with it, you just you almost can't recreate the flavors and the feeling that you get from from that. Yeah, the feeling is a part of it. 
It really is, especially when you're the one who's actually doing the cooking. I don't know how much that feeling is for someone who is uh, completely removed from the process, who just gets it served to them. The flavor is definitely different, but the feeling when you're actually cooking the meat, yeah, it's uh, there's something about it that's very enticing. Well, at at the restaurant, I mean, if 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 this was the the hearth right here you're sitting as close to it as 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 you would be. Mm, so, so you're getting all the aromas. There's no and... there's no seat in the restaurant that isn't within 20 feet of the hearth. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. And what do you is this your spot? Yeah, that's scratch bar. Okay. And so when you're cooking, do you have Okay, so you have wheels and you crank up and down like Argentine style. So when we first opened, um yeah, we were doing wheels. Uh, you can already see there I've removed uh, everything. So so what we actually ended up going with is just bricks. They're just bricks and like re- roasting racks and we just create our own little uh, apparatuses. I also got some just some uh, rolled steel uh, to create little planches. So what was wrong with the wheels? It was too one size fits all. Mm. I, like you could see there that that's about a I'm gonna say roughly four feet and four feet. So so we had two four foot wheels. One of them was just a big grill, and one of them was a was a big like plancha, and because we're doing tasting menus, um, and you've got so many different things happening, like that's great if you're at a restaurant where it's like, all right, you're gonna fire fifty steaks in the next you know hour and a half or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this was like you've got like seven or eight different courses coming off this, and each one needs to be you know treated a little bit differently with the fire. So we would create all these different sort of like. Uh, sort of apparatuses and little areas to cook. That's fascinating. So what kind of foods are you cooking in this fire other than just meat? Everything. Like how are you doing? Like Fish, using... vegetables. Basically, at some point, everything is going through the fire. Mm. And so you're using frying pans? You're using just a plancha? Like what do you... Uh... Sometimes you're going into the, into the coals with, with a pan. Sometimes you're going with the meat or fish direct, directly into the coals. Sometimes you're just going, sometimes you're just warming something, you know, you, you may have like a, a raw fish course that just sits by the fire for a few minutes just to get warm and get a little bit of smoky, you know, flavor to it and that's it. Mm. I've seen people cook on coals, like they lay a steak down mm-hmm. flat on the coals, but I was always under the impression that coals were not the best conductor of heat and that you really are better served with a, a hot metal. Depends really what you're going for. What is the difference in the flavor that you can achieve from putting it on coals versus putting it on like a grate above the coals? Well, I mean, I, I mean, right there it explains it. Either, either you're going directly into it, like either you're touching the grate and you're getting the smoke that the coals create or you're getting the flavor of the coals. Now, Sometimes that might be a bit harsh, um, but for example, in, uh, you know, uh, the Santa Maria style, you know, tri-tip in, in California, which is California's answer to barbecue, which mm-hmm. I thought was something till I came here. <laughs> Ranchers. Well, it's not really, it's grilling more than it, it is barbecue, right? Completely. Um, but but it is a it is manipulation of 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 the the protein with the temp. Yeah. So I mean there is some barbecue aspect to it. Um, but like uh, that one, um, like if I'm doing a tri tip and I and I I actually competed in the um, I think two or two years in a row I competed in the 805 state championship or whatever. Um, and what I did is is after you cooked it and and I would I would uh, rest the meat, I would then dip it in a barbecue sauce get my my pit really really roaring make a little hole and then 
put it in and bury it in the coals. Um, and that would sort of uh, give it a really interesting exterior, just like uh, texture and flavor. So uh, explain that again. So you would take the tri-tip, you would dunk it in a barbecue sauce, and then throw it right into the fire? And then and then bury it in did more you, coals. Did you cook it to a certain temperature before that? or did? Yeah, so, so I would take the, the whole tri-tip and, you know, with the rub, and I would, you know, start it really low so it gets like a little bit of bit sear and then you go all the way up and you just let it kind of like an hour and a half just let it sort of slowly get the smoke and and um obviously there's no lid on it in in the santa maria style um until you're at about 127 or so uh and then take it out and i put it in an igloo cooler and i would close the top for about an hour Mm. um hour hour and a half uh and then when it was time to serve open up the cooler, dip it completely submerged in um, barbecue sauce, and then I would basically char the barbecue sauce in the uh, in the coals. Oh, wow. How yeah. was that? It was really good. Sounds fucking amazing. I'm yeah. hungry now, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, the tri-tip is an interesting cut, right, because it's very lean. It's delicious, though. Yeah, it's very good. It seems like one you could fuck up, though. It's so easy to fuck up. Like The thing is, if you cook tri-tip like a steak, it's not very good. Mm. And I think the average person, like if, if, you know, tri-tips in every market in, in L.A., but if you just go and grab a tri-tip and you try to cook it like a ribeye, it's not very good. What do you have to do differently? Slow. Slow. We got to slow it down. So you got to treat it like you would treat uh, like a game meat because it's so devoid of fat. Yes. And I mean, you can you can cook game meat faster. But uh, in a thin slice. Tri-tip well, is kind of a fat roast. I mean, it de- it depends though. Like that that venison saddle that I showed you. I mean, it was a two pound saddles about this big, right? And I cooked that right in the fire. But it seemed long and not very thick. Like I'm looking at the the image that you sent me, and it seems like it just doesn't have the same kind of uh, thickness. Like that's that doesn't seem very thick. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, that makes sense to me that you would cook something like that at high heat. Over fire and goddamn, that looks good. I'll send this to Jamie so he can. Um, it's kind of interesting how you did it too, because you you have made in your. I mean, obviously you have access to whatever the fuck you want when it comes to cooking, and you made like like the most primitive sort of setup. You just use like concrete and cinder yeah, blocks. That and was shit. like two hundred fifty bucks from HomeDepot.com. They yeah. just brought it on on a truck and dropped it, it. My, is. you know. So you, I mean, it's probably about an inch and a half thick, maybe two inches thick. And you built this whole situation. What is this? Why are we looking at Jim Gaffigan? (laughs) (laughs) So you made this like completely on your own. Yeah. So they're just they're literally cinder blocks on the um, on the bottom, and then uh, just bricks on top. And I basically recreated. what we have at Scratch Bar just in my backyard ah, here. And where are you getting the grate from? That little grill rack? Yeah. I mean, you could probably buy it at HEB, but I don't even remember where I got that from. Probably one of the local restaurant supply stores. And when you cook, do you use specific wood? What kind of wood do you like to cook off of? Uh, I prefer almond. Almond? Um, yeah, but uh, can't really find that here. So this is mesquite. Why do you like almond? Uh it burns really clean. So like, for example, I explained at Scratch Bar, you're sitting really close to the mm-hmm. fire. If I was to use, you know, some of this post oak 
everybody who left the restaurant would just smell like they were in a they came from a smoke shop. Oh, I see. And so um, almond tends to taste. It gives you more of a foresty flavor and less of a barnyardy flavor. If that makes sense. <laughs> it sounds like you're selling almond wood because <laughs> barnyardy flavor is not sound like anything I want in my I mean, food. Of course you do. Well, it's sort of, but barnyardy sounds like horse shit. Yeah, that's when I hear not what I barnyard, meant. Barnyard, I feel like I smell poo. Sure. You know? Well, what's the forest smell like? Uh, it doesn't smell like poo. Forest <laughs> smells like trees, you know? I when I think of oak, I don't think of barnyardy. When I think of like cooking over oak, I think of like this sort of robust aroma that's imparted on the meat from the burning of this hardwood. Sure. Um, you know, tomato tomato. Okay. Um, and But you obviously have access to whatever kind of cooking utensils and equipment that you want. Why do you choose to do it this way? I did it the other ways. Um, I still do it the other ways. Uh, but that's the one that I connected with the most. Um, it's just, I mean, it's the way I want to cook at home. It's the way I want to cook at the restaurant. And it's also, you know, I really thought that... Uh, I could do something for the cooks who got to learn. I felt like if you could if you could hold down that station at Scratch Bar, you could work anywhere. And the way you're doing it, you're not even getting it down to the coals. You're you're doing it just over the fire. Like I'm looking at those logs. They were not fully submerged yeah, in fire. Yeah, so there's there's lots of different schools of thought and I I'm not going to debate which ones are correct and I'm not even sure there is a correct one. Um I personally like to cook in the flame. In the flame. Yeah. As opposed to over the heat of the burning coals. Correct. Why is that? I've just found that uh, if you go down to just coals, right? And I actually, when we first opened, I was doing charcoal and I switched to, wood, to, to hardwood. When you're just doing coals, you're just at radiant heat. At that point, it's almost as if you could just have a grill that's like an infrared grill. You've created an infrared grill. Out of out of wood or but charcoal, but there's still a lot of smoke flavor that's imparted from the Th coals. There is. Um, however, when you're dealing with a piece of wood that's on fire, uh, you're going to have a different like flavor aroma of of, of the um, of of the smoke itself because once it's all broken down into coals, it's going to smoke. You know, when you have a big flame, you have no smoke, and when you're just trying to start a flame, you have a lot of smoke. Mm. So as you're burning wood you're creating different levels of smoke, different amounts of smoke, different levels of heat versus just one large infrared area. I see. Now, when it comes to something like a tri-tip that you have to do slower, how are you doing that over fire? Uh, same thing. I mean, look, it's not that I don't cook with coals. It's just for specific things. So you're saying... It, but you wouldn't do it in the fire. Like you wouldn't have the fire touch the meat. You would have, you'd be above it. Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. But sometimes, like in that video there, I actually want the the fire. I want the flame to actually start to sear the meat. Mm. And and that's it's similar in the fact that they're both very lean to to a tri tip. With the venison. Yeah. 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 And what are you putting on the outside of a piece of meat like that? Are you using a rub before you're you're cooking it there? Are you seasoning it with anything? Uh, typically, I'm just putting, you know, salt and pepper. Like at the restaurant, it's just salt and pepper. Um, uh, recently, though, a buddy of mine gave me this. He has uh, his own, like, uh, spice rub called NADC. 
and it's fucking awesome. NADC, what does it stand for? Uh, not a damn chance. <laughs> not a damn chance of what? Just not a damn chance. <laughs> <laughs> and what's in not a damn chance? I don't know, but it's fucking really good. What's his, the name of his company so people can buy it? And... NADCco.com, I think. I'm not oh. sure. Oh, so that's the name that's of the, the name company. Of, that's the name of the company. And he only has one rub? No, he's got a bunch, but OG Steak is... Oh, uh, OG Steak. Look yeah. at this. Oh, Mango Habanero. He's yeah. a man after my own heart. Yeah. Ooh. Interesting. So, Neen's a, a professional skateboarder. Oh, who, is this uh, professional skateboarder who makes his own rubs? Yeah. He uh, he actually built a similar... Uh, we became friends. He came to Sushi Bar. That's how we became friends. But he... Uh, we kind of bonded over skateboarding, but then he's like, "Oh, I had, I built this hearth in my backyard, and he's cooking all over all over wood fire." And he just moved here to Texas too, so wow, yeah, he's actually uh, he and I uh, are the he's my uh, I don't want to don't if we call it partner because it's not a real thing, but we do the burgers together. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so this is obviously uh, that's not actually our burger, but uh, if you go to NADC Burger, that's uh, that's our burger. And how often are you, are you guys doing this a lot? This we've burger done it, thing? We've done it three times. We did it uh, at... We did it for, <laughs> There's Yoni. Yep. <laughs> so that's that's uh, at the Vulcan after um, uh, one of the shows. Right. Um, and then we did one at the Barracks, which is this like, legendary professional-only skate park in L.A. And then we just did one for CM Smokehouse's um, one-year anniversary. We would just give them away every time. We don't even charge... We just do it for fun. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. Yeah. Just for, just to perfect the process and have fun, enjoy it? We're just enjoying it, and actually we do our burger with his his seasoning. Oh, nice. It's, yeah, it's, it's, nice. it's good. So when you're cooking like that piece of venison, are you using the OG steak? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. I don't think I did in that video, but I can't remember. Now, do you ever use like an offset grill? Have you ever have you fucked around at all? Because now we're in Texas. Have you tried the their style of barbecuing out here, like the way they do a brisket? Uh, I have. I actually had. I've had two Traegers. I gave them both away though. Um, You're not a fan. I'm not not a fan. Um, well, I like I like building a fire, right? And so actually, that that um, the barbecue championship I was telling you about I got I got a I want a Traeger both both years they gave me a Traeger and then I just gave them to my my cooks who did the event with me um but uh yeah I there's something about I like building a fire now you want to do it the old school way yeah I mean but then like the you know the typical offset here you know you are doing with 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 fire mm -hmm. so um I haven't played with it that much but I do enjoy it yeah, when you talk to the guys at Terry Black's, I put something up on my Instagram the other day. I guess it's gone because it was in my stories. But um, we they gave me a tour. They always do. I always asked yeah. to give me, give me a tour of uh, the pits and see how they have it down to a science where they have, like, notebooks yeah. saying no, you it's know, wild. what was in where. And, you know, they're 12-plus hours for each brisket. And they... You know, they have this whole thing that they're doing from start to finish, like ramping up the temperature towards the end, wrapping it, all these different steps that they take. But they do not speak highly about pellet drills. Pellet grills are for the person who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. It's very convenient. I love Traegers because yeah. they're very convenient. It's great for wild game. 
you know, because you could, you know, keep a temperature probe in there. It tells my phone exactly where it's at. And I wonder if that's similar to my feelings on like sous vide. Mm. I'm sure. I'm sure. Which but these they, guys they, are so old school and they yeah. use oak. By yeah. The way. They have these, I mean, everything is made out of propane tanks. So they have somebody who welds these crazy, gigantic fucking pits out of propane tanks and this massive insulated firebox. There it is. Is um, First of all, God damn, that looks good. Yeah. Oh, my God. And their fucking sausages are insane, too. I'm, yeah, I'm a Terry Black's fanatic. I'm a very, very big fan of theirs. Um, I was so glad when you liked them. I was like, God damn it. If Philip shits on Terry Black's, <laughs> we're going to have a real problem in our friendship. <laughs> Mark, Mark uh, Black actually um, uh, sort of threw me a uh, surprise birthday party last year. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so as a, as a surprise... Um, Margarita was going to take me to she, well, she took me to Houston, but on the way to Houston, she's like, "Oh, um, uh, we're going to stop by and pick up Terry Blacks on the way, and you know you have to get out and go in." And when we did, everybody from Sushi Bar was was there, and uh, Mark, who we had just uh, met at Sushi Bar two weeks prior, he had come to the restaurant and he loved it, um, uh, was there, and he's like, "Nope, come over here. You don't have to wait in the line." He's like, "He's like, I, you know, personally cooked this one." And like he cut it, and it was like, fucking unbelievable. Yeah, brisket's an art form. It's one of those things that like, it's achieved ultimate like like the, I don't know how it gets better than it's what a it is right different now. Different at different places. It is, and still amazing. Like Franklin has a slightly different taste, but still fucking insanely good. It's all about texture for me, mm. and so there's a few places in town that just like. They're at they're on a completely another level, and or at least I know I haven't tried everywhere in town, but the ones that I have tried, you know, Franklin's, La Barbecue, uh, uh, Terry Black's. Um, I don't know. Have you tried CM Smokehouse? No. Yoni speaks very highly of it, though. Yoni's the man when it comes. Oh, to... Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah, but but CM Smokehouse is the sleeper in, in that. Ah. I I when I tried his his. Brisket. I looked at him because you know you meet someone who's a friend of someone else's, and you're like, oh, that you know he does right. stuff. And then when you when that friend of a friend actually is super legit, you're like, wait a second, like you made this? This is fucking. This is good. This ah, is really fucking good. Interesting. Yeah. Um, did but, you talk to him about methods? I haven't talked to him about methods, but I did say I did tell him that I'm like this is, and I don't know if I, I said it just without thinking. I think I was drinking too, but I was like, this is as good as any of those other those other three. And I meant it to be a compliment, not like, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, you know what? Yours is actually as good as other people's. Right. Um, Did he get offended? No, not at all. Because, I mean, I think there's a there's an understanding that that's the pinnacle. Right. So if you're, I mean, if you were to say, Philip, your restaurant's as good as the French Laundry, I wouldn't be offended. I would be, right. I don't even think you're correct. <laughs> right. It is amazing how many great barbecue restaurants are in this city. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Well, it's crazy how many good restaurants are in this city. Yeah. It's there doesn't appear to be bad restaurants in Austin. It's very hard to survive. Well, I just, I haven't had it. I haven't been to a bad restaurant yet. I could tell you a few places that suck. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I'm sure there's places, there's some mediocrity. I'm, I'm sure there's terrible stuff, because there's terrible stuff everywhere. But further out of town. But like, you go to LA, and if you were just to throw a, like, a, a dart at a random restaurant, it's hit or miss that that thing's even edible. There's tons of bad food, but there's so like so the, many people. But then here, it's like I think like the peaks and valleys are higher 
in you know a place like LA, but here everywhere you eat is just solid. Mm. That was one of the things that that really stuck out to us. That like we didn't have, you know, we didn't we have we still haven't had a bad meal here. Well, it's also a town that celebrates independent businesses, mm-hmm. independent stores, independent restaurants. It's like it's it would be very hard to be like a Ruth's Chris here, you know. There is one, isn't there? I'm sure there is. Yeah. But I mean, in comparison to like some like the Eddie V's type places that yeah. have like this feel that you go to, there's a feel of like, hey, this is a business that's created by humans. And actually, it's, this is not like we're going to show you how to make a restaurant the way we make a restaurant. You follow our guidelines. We're going to do it this way because when you go to a place, and not shitting on Ruth's Chris, they make a great steak, but you go to a place that's uh, like a a place has been doing it forever and with the owners and the chefs yeah. and all the people that have been cooking and serving it there it's like there's a feel to that place it's like a, a part of the experience is the feel like you know you're going to someone's place yeah and that's that's the thing is like i so i fell in love with this city in 2013 um we came out here and we did uh uh south by southwest i brought scratch bar out here and we spent two weeks and um, we actually opened on the corner of 6th and Red River. Not on the corner, but we actually down, down an alleyway. We got a truck. We set up some picnic tables, and we were doing tasting menus, um, you know, just all day. You could just walk up and have, like, a $50 tasting menu on the side of the, you know, South By. Nice. And um, while I was out here, uh, I just fell in love with, like, the ingenuity and the community of chefs and the just the like just the style you could you could it felt like a place where you could just have an idea and go and do something coming from LA that's not so much the case well LA is just such a complicated city and so much more complicated now because of the pandemic and then the aftermath of the poor management of the city it's just it's such a fucked up place now that it, it, it's but it's always had this weird sort of like non-community community aspect to it you know well i grew up in the valley and so it definitely there was like there's neighborhoods and and communities and like when we first opened scratch bar in encino um you would it was every night this person knew this person Locals, this person yeah. knew that you know it was a, it was a lot of that and it was you know i wanted to open there because it's where i grew up and it because it was you know it's you know where my my parents lived and my friends parents lived and and just sort of that sense of community which you don't find all over LA. Right. Yeah, there's more of that in Encino and and and, and more of that even so when you go to like Orange County and there's yeah. places down there but it's just LA is just so polluted by the entertainment industry. Like that the disingenuous aspect of the entertainment particularly acting and like the pursuit of acting success and then and then then on top of that, we didn't think that that was disingenuous enough. It was reality stars. And then, like, well, that's not stupid enough. TikTok stars. It's like they keep coming up with new levels of stupidity. And that's the pinnacle is the, you know, the online, like, content creator star. You know, I guess whatever makes people happy, whatever works for them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's my political uh, response to that. Yeah, I mean, it's just the problem is, like, there's too many people, too. 
And one of the things about a city like Austin is that it's only a million people and then another million in the surrounding areas. That's not a lot. It's very small in comparison yeah. to Los Angeles. Well, every, also, everybody's nice here. Yeah. And I, and I have a, th- I have a theory on, on why that is. Um, and not just the people from here. Well, the people from here are nice. But, like, you come, you, you, people go to L.A. and I feel like there's this, this, this perceived persona that's like, I need to be an asshole to fit in. And really? so, yeah. I think so. I think a lot of people moved to L.A. and they like they want to, especially in, in the entertainment industry, they moved to L.A. and they're like, OK, I'm going to be this sort of, you know, this this sort of like, you know, douchebag mentality style. Um, I mean, if you grew up in L.A., you can always tell who's from from L.A. because they don't honk and they put on their blinkers and they wave <laughs> and they wave to you That's um, funny. here. Everyone moved here recently and they're like, oh, if I'm going to fit in, I got to be really nice to everybody. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, go to New York. That's do you think that douchebaggishness is uh, prevalent in LA? In New York, they really adopt it. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine about that, about what's happening in comedy clubs in New York that uh, people get angry if you bring up certain premises and they're they're like the woke aspect of it and he's like, "But guess what, bro? None of them are from here. They're like fucking Maine people." They're like from somewhere else where they thought they were going to adopt this persona by coming to New York and being like real aggressive about like being like this left wing, progressive, angry city dweller. Yeah. And they're like, it's a persona they adopt. It's like this makes them happy to try to pretend that they're this person. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just an interesting idea that like I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to reinvent myself to fit in. That's a lot of it, though. Yeah. It's a lot. A lot of people do that, man. I mean, people do move to places to reinvent themselves. You yeah. Know, there's a lot of people that don't know why they are the way they are, and they don't like it. They don't like how they fit in where they are, especially if you grew up in a place. So they've known you since you were five. That's a fucking problem. Because yeah. now that you're 18, you want to have pink hair. They're like, fuck you. They're like, but I like pink hair. You know, no, no, no. You got to move to a place, and they go, oh, Mike has pink hair. He's always had pink hair. And they just accept you. Yeah, I moved to Chicago when I was like, uh, I don't even know how old. Um, but it was it was interesting to just be in a new place where you could, I mean, I didn't reinvent myself because I just moved there to cook and I kept cooking. But it's interesting to like make new friends and meet new people and have the opportunity to have zero baggage yeah. or zero preconceived notion. And you can, I mean, it's kind of when Margaret and I moved here, it was like no one knew us and they were only introduced to us with the success of Sushi Bar, um, which was so interesting because, like, in L.A., we've been hustlers. We're known as, like, the the young kids who have been hustling forever and, and you know, have have made it. And here we're, we, we walk in and everyone's like, oh, you're from Sushi Bar. And it's like, that's weird because we're not used to people, like, approaching us that way. Right. Well, there's, you know, again, there's, like, not that many people here. Yeah. It's different. It's a small. It's essentially a small town, and part of that could be a problem. You know, there's there's definitely people that are like super into talking to certain people because they are famous or because they you know run a famous restaurant or something, and they they'll weasel their way into your life. And I I have a lot of uncomfortable conversations where people are trying to get on the podcast for no fucking reason whatsoever. I'm like, what do you, what is this conversation we're having? Like, yeah, I haven't. Luck, I mean, luckily, I haven't either. I haven't noticed it, or I'm too naive. Um, but uh, or busy, or busy. Yeah, I know this is um, this has become the busiest I've ever been this last this last year, and now with uh, 
getting out of Sushi Bar ATX and and uh, what we've got coming is is going to get even busier. So Sushi Bar ATX though, you sold it to someone? What did you do? So uh so does the McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> um basically, uh I'm no I'm no longer involved. Uh I'm not I'm not an owner. I am no longer the chef there. Um you cashed out. I some, something happened and I am no longer involved. Oh. So something negative. No, 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 nothing negative. I'm just not supposed to, we're not not really talking about the interworkings of of I was involved. I'm no longer involved. This is cryptic. Uh, I want to like pause the show and decipher this. Jamie, how are you feeling about this? I think I understand what he's saying. I feel like it's very cryptic. But also, I maybe understand the cryptus cryptosity. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you some more cryptosity. <laughs> I'll give you more context to the story. Okay. So uh, you don't have to if you feel uncomfortable about it. I don't give a fuck. I'm just riding you. No, no, no. Well, there's there's other stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, Margaret and I started uh, Scratch Bar actually 2013, and uh, we it operated in a, in a uh, coffee shop, and we moved it from the, our coffee shop to our one bedroom apartment in uh, in Hollywood. From there, uh, we somebody who ate at, at our apartment offered us. You it, served food at your apartment? Yeah, we were doing about commercially. Yeah, we charged for it. How the fuck did you manage to do that? So we were we were operating at this coffee shop, and the deal was um, they were open from like it was breakfast through like four p.m. They closed, and they hired me to be like to redo their menu. And so when they hired me to do that, they asked me, "What do you want to charge?" And I said, "You close at four p.m. So instead of paying me, what if I just get to use your space at night? And I'm gonna open a restaurant at night here." And that was the deal. I worked there for free all day during the day. And then at night, I would turn it into Scratch Bar. Oh, that's a great deal. Um, for them. Yeah, and I thought so. And then after a few weeks, the guy comes over and says, uh, well, I, I, I'd i rather, you know, you start putting a little more focus into what, I, you know, my menu. And I said, well, our deal was I would I would change it X amount. I used to be a big hothead. We, we ended that conversation with, fuck you, I'm out. Um we the, it happened on I think on a Saturday and we were closed Sunday Monday we had res we were sold out next week and I was like fuck what are we gonna do so we gutted our apartment and we called all of our reservations and told them to come to our apartment. <laughs> wow, how many people could you see at a time? Uh, I want to say we sat close to like twenty something. That is wild. Yeah. So what did your fucking neighbors think? I mean, it you, only this lasts guy's partying every night. Yeah, I mean, we were in West Hollywood. It's not like, you know, we were in a quiet area. We were on, like, Crescent Heights and Sunset. Right. So um, we did that for a couple of weeks. And during that time, one of our guests was like, you know, he came in and basically said, this is incredible. I have an em I own an empty restaurant space on Restaurant Row next door to Matsuhisa. Ah. And um, if you want to go 50-50, you can move the restaurant into my space. Oh, that's amazing. We opened up. On Restaurant Row, La Cienega, uh, the next week. Uh, fast forward from 2013, we've opened multiple restaurants. Uh, now, today, um, I'm not involved in Austin anymore, but Marie and I now uh, own 100% of our restaurant. So you were not 100% an owner of Sushi Bar? 
I've had I've, I've had partners since 2013. Okay. So see. now in uh, Scratch Restaurants, which operates Scratch Bar and Kitchen, uh, both sushi bars and pasta bar. Uh, we don't have partners there anymore. We should probably tell everybody how we met and what happened because um, You guys weren't planning on living in Austin. No, it's kind and of your fault a little bit. It's my wife's fault um, Because my wife's friend who's a sushi fiends like there's gonna be a pop-up in Austin Sushi bar is like her favorite spot in LA and she's like they're coming to Austin because they can't work in Los Angeles because the draconian measures by this goofy fucking government. So they, you guys set up shop here. My wife drags me out because uh, basically I always want to eat meat. And she's like, like, come out for sushi. It's supposed to be really good. Like, okay, okay, okay. I go, it's fucking phenomenal. And I put it on my Instagram. Yeah, so um, in December of 2020, 2020, yeah. December of 2020, LA said, it's too dangerous to serve on the patio. Um, and so they said, shut everything down. You can't serve indoors. You can't serve outdoors. Earlier in the year when they said you can't serve indoors, we literally just built a sushi bar on our patio. So patio business was fine. We had built tents and everything. But now it was too dangerous to be on the patio either. So um, we were going to have to lay everyone off right before Christmas. And so Marie and I decided that we didn't want to do that. Instead, we said, if anyone's willing to work, we will find another state that will let us work. Because um, at that point, it wasn't L.A. anymore. It was California. We were going to go up north and do a, uh, do a sushi bar uh, in um, Big Sur. And then they closed all of California. So um, I had some friends out here. And we came out. And we found a space. And um, we did this pop-up that was supposed to last five weeks. We got here at the end of December. We were supposed to go back at the beginning of February. And... Um, when we tried to come out here, you know, we have a publicist in L.A. and they were uh, talking to all of the different writers here in town and they all said, we're not going to promote them. You know, with with COVID, we're just not promoting anything right now. So we were like, fuck, we're going out to a city that we don't know, that doesn't know us and we have no reservations. And so we sent out a, a newsletter to our following. And I guess that's where uh, your wife's friend saw it. And we basically said, uh, if you know anyone who's in Austin, please tell them to come support us. And uh, after probably about two weeks of being open, we had sold out the um, the entire stint. Yeah, so we came. Um, there it is. Look at you. <laughs> Best sushi I've ever had in my life. So this is when? 53 weeks ago. Basically a year. Yeah. Wild. And so, uh, yeah, you, um, you convinced me to keep it at least <laughs> one. You, you, I think you said to me, uh, you got to you got to keep this. I got to we got to got to stay. And I said, oh, I can't. I have to go back. And you said, Well, uh, if you stay through February, I'll post about it. And I said, Okay. <laughs> and that's what happened. And and you you did. And uh, we you know I didn't know. I mean, I had no idea what to expect. But the, that night, you posted about it, and we sold out February within four minutes that night. <laughs> And then the next morning we woke up and there's like 20,000 people on the wait list. <laughs> and um, we just kept extending and extending and extending. And then um, eventually we signed a lease and it's been phenomenal. We haven't had a, uh, I'm saying we like I'm still there. I'm not there anymore. But um, the restaurant never had a day that wasn't at capacity. And um, now uh, and now we are, um, now that Margie and I have 
you know, control of scratch restaurants, we're, um, and we live here now, we're bringing two new sushi concepts this year, and uh, Pasta Bar will be here shortly as well. And Pasta Bar you're going to put in on 6th, which is uh, very close from my super secret comedy club project that will probably open in a similar time frame. Yeah, we... Um, uh, Pasta Bar will open in March. The goal right now is March 11th, which is the first day of uh, South By. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and so as of right now, um, we actually, we don't know the exact date yet. We haven't released it, but you can go on pastabaraustin.com and actually uh, get on the wait list for when we open reservations. Cause so the club, comedy club will be open just for anybody listening. It'll be longer than that. It'll take a little longer than that. But um, you're doing something else too, though, right? You're, you're going to do uh, a sushi place that's out like a little further outside of town? Yeah. So um, we are in escrow on a ranch out uh, in Dripping. So in Dripping Springs, uh, right off of Fitzhugh, um, we got a 1.2-acre ranch, and um, it's going to be really fucking cool. Nice. It's an old, uh, like, cowboy-style log cabin, which is going to be a Japanese whiskey bar. Oh, wow. And then you're going you're gonna to go onto this property and have your welcome cocktail in there, um, canapes. Uh, this is not going to be the, 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 the sushi bar concept. So all of our sushi bars uh, up until now... Um, uh, which, by the way, uh, we're um, with the new sushi rest. Well, we're we're changing the name of sushi bar uh, for our ones in LA and Montecito, and another one that's coming here. So it's going to be called Sushi by Scratch Restaurants, and um, so all of those are the, the what was the sushi bar concept. This is going to be a completely different concept. So you're going to go onto the property. The property you're, you're going to have uh, uh, your drink and your 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 snacks in this little uh, like log cabin, and then you're going to be taken through like the grounds of the property to another cabin where uh, we're going to have uh, a pretty exciting concept. Where sushi bar was a one star concept, we're going to attempt at like a two or three star sushi concept here and what's the difference like what are you gonna do so the sushi bar was is was always designed to be appealing to everybody um in terms of like the the types of fish that we were getting although we were getting like the highest quality salmon you could get we had salmon on the menu we had you know we had albacore on the menu we had a lot of things that were you know uh think of us almost as like a gateway restaurant where we weren't, uh, you go to some sushi restaurants and you don't recognize a single fish that's on the menu. So this is going to be a little bit more um, higher end fish. It's also going to be, um, we're going to have a tank with like like live uh, live king crabs and live lobsters and things like that. Um, I haven't quite finished the full concept, but it's going to also not be 100% sushi. It's going to be like 80% sushi. And when you say like, like like exotic fish like what are you talking about like what kind of fish so one of my favorite fish uh is called akamutsu and it's a um, that's jamie's favorite yeah right it's actually from ohio yeah that's from ohio what did the hell is an akamutsu google that yeah how do you spell that ak what, what were you starting with no A-K-A-M-U-T-S-O, Akamut. Is it German? Yeah, it's German fish, yeah, from Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds super Japanese. 
Oh wow. Okay, so it looks like a snapper. Uh, Black throat sea perch. Yeah. So it's a perch, but it's it's very very it's in very very deep waters. Um, mm. It's. Oh, that makes me hungry. Yeah. It's it's also incredibly difficult to source and very expensive. Um, but you know where where we have very uh, you know the, the type of fish selection for for a sushi bar is very. Um, uh, I don't want to say average because it's, it's it's not average, but it's it's very approachable for someone who's not necessarily like a sushi connoisseur. Mm. So this is going to be just sort of like the next level. Mm. Um, and now that kind of fish, is there a difference in the type of flavor that you're going to get from a yeah. fish like that? Like, yeah. is there a way to describe that? So that one, you serve it with the skin on. The skin's so mm. soft that when you when you take the scales off, I'll usually just use my hands. I won't use a, a uh, a scaler. Really? You'll take yeah. the scales off with your hands? Yeah, because you'll rip the skin. It's so soft. Wow. Um, and so the the oil content is just like a single fish sells for $736,000. What? <laughs> what did you say? That's what it says. But yeah, that's a lot. Is that real? I you're you're going to spend three quarters of a million. Of course. You're going to spend three quarters of a million dollars on fish? I mean, some some of the bluefin tunas are selling for millions of dollars. But isn't that like a dick waving contest when they do that with the bluefin tuna? It could the way be. the way I've it's been explained to me is that that's like a restaurant wants to establish that they're like the big Kahuna, so they'll uh, they'll outbid everyone else. But the actual market price of a single tuna is never that high. Yeah, I mean, I I carry probably the most expensive tuna that you could get. Um, like regularly in America, and I'm not paying a million dollars for a fish. Right, that's what I'm saying. This video actually says it's an akamutsu, but the like caption says it's a bluefin tuna caught off northeastern Japan, fetch seven hundred thirty-six thousand. Got it. Yeah. So tu tuna oh. would also. I mean, akamutsu's not. I mean, it's not huge. Where tuna, you. I mean, the thing is, a lot of those those guys who do buy those tunas, they can cut it up and freeze it and send it to 10 of their restaurants and and sell it for a lot of money as this is the most expensive prized tuna of the year. Right. And when you're dealing with sushi, you think of the size of the portion yeah. and you know if it's I mean like if you're going to a sushi place like Soto or somewhere in town that's a nice sushi place, what would like a two piece of sushi like Toro go for roughly? I'm gonna guess twenty nine dollars. No, I would guess less, but I don't 17 know. Seventeen dollars. Let's just let's just call it twenty bucks. Yeah. So if it's twenty bucks and it's two small pieces. Imagine... Oh, for two pieces, yeah, it might be more. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, you're thinking individual single yeah. pieces. So let's just say it's thirty dollars, and think of thirty dollars, and then look at the entire tuna. How many thirty dollar portions are in there? It's hundreds and hundreds. And right? when you're saying this is the most prized tuna of the year, that thirty dollar piece is three hundred dollars, and people mm. are paying for it. Right. I get it. And I don't then, think anyone's losing money on on those tunas they spend that money on. Of course, they wouldn't do it, right? I mean, well, it might be worth a little bit of money just for the marketing and PR or whatever. But I think when they the, the thing that someone was explaining to me, and honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I heard it on a podcast. Um, I think it was on Meat Eater, and I think they were saying that it's not that they would normally spend that much money on a tuna. It's that there's like a sort of a ceremonial aspect of this bidding to see if that's true. I don't know how you'd even Google that. Well, there de it definitely is a, they do bid on it, but yeah. how it gets to be millions of dollars. That's what's confusing. And that's what he was trying to. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's not in the, nor I mean, like I'm saying the normal market, but what I'm, you know, 
because what I'm getting is is from Toyosa. It is from what used to be Tsukiji. Um, so it is coming from the same market where that bidding is happening. But when I'm getting, you know, uh, we don't get whole tunas. We get we get them halved, but they're almost as big as like the length of this table. So you get them in the full form, and then you yeah. piece it up yourself. So remember when you came the first time to Sushi Bar, the that the the size of that table it was almost reached end to end and i think that mm. was yeah so it was maybe like probably six feet mm-hmm. that's a big ass touche uh, piece of tuna yeah and so that's how many pounds is that 100 and something 180 probably and what does something like that cost couple thousand jesus so when you're doing like um inventory for a sushi place like it seems like that would require a lot of skill and clever planning yes except that you know we've been lucky enough at all of our our locations to have we have 10 seats we do 30 people a night they do the menu that we choose for them mm. and we do it 7 days a week right so, so you we can have a, plan it better we know than... we know roughly exactly what we're doing mm. and that's typically also part of the reason why we push if you want extras that you get something try something new because mm-hmm. we'll bring in four or five extra fish one or two of each just to have extras so that we know that all right, we're getting 30 of these, 30 of these, 30 of these. Maybe you want an extra, you know, Toro or Yellowtail or something, and that's fine. We always have a little bit extra, um, but it just keeps it in a constant, you know. Right, so you can manage it much easier. Now, Sushi Bar um, is now no longer you, but this pasta bar that you're doing, like what – I'm not familiar with the one that you have in LA. So what is what is going to be different about that? Like what's is it the same sort of a thing like a tasting menu? Yeah. So everything that we do in our group is all tasting menus. Um and so uh similar to sushi bar, you're going to sit right up to the counter. The stoves are going to be like if you're sitting there, the stoves are where this wall is right here. Um and we're doing a I think we're doing about a, about 13 course tasting menu. In that 13 courses, unlike sushi, you're not going to have 13 bowls of pasta because that would be difficult to have. Um, there's about five por- five courses of that is pasta, and then all the other courses are something that kind of help tell the story of like a, a you know an upscale pasta dinner. Like what kind of stuff is that? Um, well, so you start off always uh, with your own loaf of margarita sourdough, which is mm. the best sourdough you've ever had, like have you hands ever down. Had Tom Papa's sourdough. I haven't, but I well, can't. Until you ima- do, you might want to shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> well, I'm still going to say my wife's is better. I'm sure it's amazing. The Tom Papa's is really good. We should. Uh, you we should, should try have a, a sourdough off. We should. <laughs> I am a giant fan of the Tom Papa sourdough. Look at that. Yeah. So, Come on. so you get uh, so that's margarita sourdough, and then she makes uh, butter. God damn, that looks good. Yeah. So the Why thing does about bread looks so good. The thing about hers is it's so crunchy, but like it's the crust is very thin, but it's so crusty. Mm. Um, and then the inside is just like a pillow, and it's super sour. Oh. Um, and then uh, she makes butter that it goes with. She makes her own butter. Yeah. Does she churn? Do the whole deal? Of course. God I mean, not damn. by hand. Um, but uh, and then you know the our whole group. Scratch restaurants is the fact that we don't serve anything we don't make from scratch. So like mm. the, the fact that we make the soy sauce and um, the bread, the butter, the ice creams, the cheeses, whatever. So um, 
I mean, here you go. This is what's mm. on the. This is what's looking like it's on the menu. Damn, that looks good. So when you make your pasta, now one of the things that I noticed, and many people have remarked on this, talked about this, when they go to Italy and they have pasta in Italy, you don't feel like shit. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about the wheat that they use that has a different reaction in people's bodies, and it's been been explained to me that it's like. Was it double zero flour or something like that? Like yeah, so there's there's different flour. I mean, if you just go and get what they call AP flour, that's like that's what your is going to give you like that kind of really thick pasty kind of like sit in your stomach. And that's it's regular flour that you yeah. buy from a grocery store. Yeah, but there are I mean there's specific flours that that uh, that we use and that that um, you can get that are that are much different um, Durham. Uh, double zero, all these different types of flowers. And what is this double zero stuff that everybody says is the best? Um, I shouldn't say everybody because I've, I've really talked to everybody about it. That's no, but ev- everybody does say it's the best. <laughs> um, it, it, it's it is it's become very very popular in in pizzas in uh, yeah. in in breads, and it really is. It's like I kind of the the best way I would sort of describe it is it's it's much lighter, it's much cleaner. Is it, it easier to digest? I, th- I mean, it feels easier to digest. I don't know from like a like a compound makeup whether you know what it is that makes it different, but uh, it feels much better. That's when people describe pasta and pizza in yeah. Italy that they don't use the kind of flour that we have over here. Yeah, and um, you know Maynard uh, Keenan from Tool. You know mm-hmm. he uh, has a bunch of restaurants in Arizona and really, yeah, he's a vineyard. Yeah, you didn't know about he, no. Yeah. Oh, I knew he, he had. I knew he had a vineyard. I didn't know he, he had restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. his Osterias. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, um, I think is it Merkin Vineyards Osterias? Is that what he calls them? He named his. He's such a fucking freak. He named his restaurant after uh, a fake vagina toupee. <laughs> That's what a Merkin is. American well, Vineyards Tasting Room in Austria. It's I don't know pizzas. him, but I've listened to enough Tool to know he's, you know, an interesting dude. Oh, he's super interesting. Super fucking smart guy. And a very cool guy. I love him to death. But uh, his uh, food, by the way, if you ever get a chance to eat there, the pizza's insane. It's My so sister lives good. in Arizona, so I'll have to check it out. It's in sometime. Scottsdale. It's an yeah, old, old where town she lives. Scottsdale. Yeah, well, we had uh, a UFC in Phoenix, and we drove all the way out to Scottsdale to eat there. It was that good. Um, but I went to visit him anyway. But yeah. anyway, his... Um, explanation was that when they changed wheat or they started uh, adjusting and manipulating wheat to develop higher yields mm-hmm. that the problem is that that wheat has more complex glutens in it and it's, uh, it's you definitely get higher yield per acre but it's more difficult for people to yeah. digest yeah i don't know if that's true but it makes sense i mean me. that's what they say is true here it is um, double zero flour, also known as doppio zero or zero zero flour, is a finely ground Italian flour commonly used to make pasta and pizza dough in Italy and other parts of Europe. Uh, grind sizes vary from double zero to two. Oh, so it's the size of the grind. Double zero is the finest grind and two is the coarsest. Huh. Is it from different wheat? Well, you would imagine, just think about... Their wheat is just different, period, right? Like, their food is different. Well, of course, yeah. It's all, it, their steaks are different. They're all grass-fed cows over there. But you would imagine if you have something finer rather than more coarse, if you're going to dilute that in water... Yes. Right? Or or with whatever you're going to make, you know, use to make your pasta, the finer it is, the, mo- like, the more it's going to spread out and become... And become uh, 
fine for a better. Well, it just seems like it'd be easier for your body to break it down. Yeah, because right? it's not it's not as thick and as coarse. Right. So, are you using um, a specific combination of flours? Do you do? You, is there a way? Do you like it? So, so different pastas are going to have different, you know, different flours and different combinations. Just just for the flavor aspect or the texture. Yeah. So, I mean. Depending on what you're, if you're looking for a chewier noodle, if you're looking for something that's softer and more pillowy, mm. um, and then you know how the, the amount of hydration and, and and there's certain things that go into it to make it specific to what it is you're trying to achieve. And did you do this by trial and error? Is this something that you learned from? You know, is that like from? Co- so uh, I worked with. Um, I mean, I've worked in a lot of restaurants that made fantastic pasta. I've never worked in a pasta restaurant. So what we're doing at the restaurant right now is sort of a a conglomeration of, you know, really what everybody, you know, the way that I sort of run the restaurants is it really is like a a conglomeration of the entire team. So anyone who has anything, you know, uh, of value to add, it gets added. Um, So, you know, there may be that, you know, this cook has this recipe and this cook has this recipe and we've, we've worked together to kind of develop just like the best recipes that we can do. Cause I've never been a fan of, of not being as good as we can because it was only my idea. Mm, that's interesting. So you pick people that you work with that you can collaborate with. And yeah. so like sometimes will someone come to you with an idea of a dish and you guys like talk it through? Yeah. So we actually at, at Scratch Bar back in 2017, we used to change the entire menu every single month. So 20 new dishes. Oh, wow. And um, it would for the long time, it was just me, just solely me, just with a notebook, just coming up with new dishes. And then eventually I was like, I need to keep the team engaged. And also the team would come to me and be like, hey, um, what do you, uh, we, we were thinking we want to cook rabbit next month. So I was, we started implementing every Friday during family meal. It wasn't mandatory. You could either stay, eat with the team, and we can talk about what you guys want to cook next month, or you can go and call your girlfriend or whatever. And um, we started really, you know, working together to kind of put these menus together. And at this one point, one of our younger cooks had the idea um, to do a, um, he said, well, what if we do something like a, uh, uh, bagel and cream cheese and everybody laughed at him. And I was like, no, there's no such thing as a bad idea. We have to like, what? Okay. So obviously we can't do bagel and cream cheese. So what is like, I see where you're coming from now. How do we get there? And we worked together over probably about a month and a half and where we got to, um, you know, and I, and I worked with him on how, how to actually think, how, what are we thinking about? Right. So First of all, we have to make everything ourselves. We're not making bagels. That's not an option. So, okay. Um, and how do you do that at a world-class level? So instead of making, oh, well, bagel chip. Well, I'd have to make a bagel to make a bagel chip. So no, how about a cracker? Well, if we put caraway in that cracker, then we're going to have the flavor of rye bread, which is going to be reminiscent of of a deli you know, experience. So, okay, so we have a, a caraway cracker. Okay, we can make our own uh, uh, um cream cheese. We've done that before, but I love lakshmir. So instead of lakshmir, maybe we're going to fold in right at the last second, fresh salmon roe, you know, um, smoked salmon roe. So you have like, the, you're going to put a layer of this, uh, this, um, homemade cream cheese. That's really light and airy because what we do is we would, uh, strain off the way and then reincorporate just the amount that we would want. So it would be the right texture. And then we thought, okay, uh, instead of uh, we've already got the salmon aspect. So what if we do, what if we smoke sea urchin? 
and we put that on top. Mm. Um, and it, and then we dehydrated small little red onions, which gave you the flavor of an onion bagel. And then you eat this little thing. It was this big. And it was like, okay, we figured out how to take this idea, which everyone laughed at, and turn it into something at a world-class level. Wow. Now, why would you know? You said, like, almost matter-of-factly, we're not making bagels. Like, why would you not make bagels? I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, we're not, I mean, scratch bars, you saw a picture of it. We're not set up to be a bagel factory. Bagels kind of, they're kind of boiled, right? They are. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it, what's really difficult about being a restaurant where you have to make everything yourself is like, if we're going to make something that everyone's used to, we have to make it better than that. And I've never made bagels, and I that's a huge undertaking to like put a bagel program on the men, on on the team just so we can have this one dish mm. um so we're not making bagels because there's a like a lot of variation in like the level of bagel yeah you know it's really interesting like, and we want it we want to whatever we put out has, like if we cook a steak it's gotta be like fuck that's the best steak i've ever had fuck right. that was the best whatever now when we put out this final product that was this big people would take a bite and they'd go fuck that's kind of like a bagel and cream cheese, but fucking good. And if I gave him a bagel that wasn't as good, and the guy from New York's like, this isn't as good as the bagel I grew up with, oh. then I'm, you know, I'm fucked. Yeah, just don't let people in New York in. <laughs> the New York people are very particular about their pizza and very particular about their bagels, but I think they're right, unfortunately. They may be. <laughs> they may be. We, we, had, we had good bagels in, in LA. I haven't, have, I haven't found a good bagel here yet. I've, I've heard it explained to me that there's something about the water so in New York. I realized, I, I, I hired a chef who um, was working at the restaurant. I was really excited for him to try my favorite bagels in, in, in L.A. And he tried it, and he's like, this isn't very good. And I was like, I don't understand. It's really good. And I realized that the bagels he grew up with are different than the bagels I grew up with. He's like, this is really soft with like a crispy exterior. And I was like, yeah. He's like, no, it's supposed to be chewy. It's supposed to hurt your jaw. And I was like, why would I want to do that? Interesting. And he was, ex but he was explaining to me like the culture of bagels and why you want this. And I was like, yeah, I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, it's a flavor profile though. The, the difference in the flavor of bread mm -hmm. from bread is probably the best example because Italian bread from New York or New Jersey has a very particular flavor profile that's unavailable from when you get bread in California, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I have not spent enough time in New York. I've probably been there two or three times for, like, weekends. Really? Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time there. Oh, wow, that's kind of crazy, because that's, like, one of the culinary capitals of the world. Yeah. Wouldn't you imagine, right? I would imagine, but I haven't. That's funny. Yeah. When, you know, when you create these restaurants, do you have any desire of doing something that is not a tasting menu, or is that just... You prefer being in complete control of the experience. I prefer tasting menus, especially now post-pandemic and the way the world is going. Um, it's, you know, you asked the perfect question, uh, how do you inventory? Yeah. It's not difficult to inventory when you know exactly what you're selling. Mm. Um, and if I have 30 people coming in in a 20-item menu, how do I have, like, what right. if everybody buys the ribeye, I have to throw away all the chicken? Right. Or... I have to sell the chicken when it's past its prime and not very good, and then people won't come back because it wasn't very good. Right. So um, beyond that, I just have 
we've found our success in these sort of experientially driven sort of fine dining tasting menus. Um, it's also what I enjoy the most. I'm someone who like when I look at a menu at a restaurant, I get a little bit of anxiety. I don't, I'm like, I, I'm, I get upset because I'm like, I don't know what to order. There's, there's 30 things on here and I, you know, this is, I would much rather go to a restaurant where like, hey, we're really good at this, so we're going to cook you this. Mm. Well, it works. And I love that, you know, you could just think, you don't have to think about anything, just waiting for the next piece of food. That's all you have to do. Well, it's, I mean, I, f- I mean, you don't go to a, a movie and then tell it what you want it to do for you. You mm. know, it's like you, 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 sh- you go to a restaurant because they serve the food you want or you like the chef and what they've done in the past. And then you say, okay. I would, I would really, I, I would enjoy whatever you cook for me, or I would like to enjoy it. Well, one one of the things that I loved about the sushi bar experience is that it's a communal experience. Like yeah. everybody's experiencing the exact same piece of sushi at the exact same time. Yeah. So we're all sitting around this bar together, and you say, "Please enjoy." Yeah. And, and then people eat it, and they go, "Oh!" And everybody looks around, like, "Ooh, I love it!" And you hear the noises, and every, yeah. And it's such a small room. There's, you know, what do you, you guys have? Ten people. Ten seats. Yeah. Ten seats. I mean, that's. Yeah, so that's what. So in March we're opening another sushi restaurant here in Austin. Um, the uh, the ranch won't open until probably August September because we have we have a lot of like infrastructure work to do. But uh, March we're opening a new sushi spot here. And where's that going to be? Can you tell? Uh, it's going to be I can't say exactly yet, but it's going to be a little bit outside of town. It's going to be about about ten minutes past the airport. And that will be omakase as well. It'll be the so it's going to be called Sushi by Scratch Restaurants, which is what uh, the LA or the LA and Montecito um, sushi bars are. They're becoming as well, and um, uh, it'll essentially be the same. Well, I don't want to say the same like we've just phoned in another one, but it's going to be another of the same concept. And by the way, your brother catered Andrew Schultz's wedding. Yeah, I broke his balls <laughs> about that a little bit. Um, he, uh, I mean, it turns out Andrew's wife, uh, her parents, I've known them for years. Oh, that's crazy. Um, up in Montecito. Um, and so I've, I've actually met his wife a couple times, not knowing, you know. Uh, but uh, Lennon didn't know that... Um, didn't know who, uh, like, who wasn't told, just told, hey, can you cater my uh, daughter's wedding? And that was it. Oh, so, that's funny. Yeah. It was a fun party, though. And the sushi was off the hook. Yeah. It was I'm sure it good. was. Tell your brother he nailed it. Yeah. I just, well, you're po- telling him that right now. I, well, <laughs> you nailed it. I was posted up there. I ate a fucking, he told me, a couple of pounds of sushi. Yeah, he told me. <laughs> Well, listen, man, please let us know when, as soon as your new place is up, I'll, I'll post about that too, and I'll fuck up your waiting list there too. Yeah. Well, we're, um, we are, uh, by the time this goes up, we'll sushi by scratchrestaurants.com will be up and running. Nice. And uh, people can go on and join the wait list, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll actually release the reservations probably in the next week or so. All right. Beautiful. Well, yeah. thank you, brother. It's been great becoming your friend. And uh, what you do when it comes to your, your food is fucking sensational. I, I didn't think sushi could be that good. I really didn't. It's a, it was a new eye-opening experience. So thank you for that. Thank and you. thank you for this uh, awesome whiskey. Yeah. It's, it, that, that stuff's special. Be careful it with is. that, though, because may, by the time you finish it, there may not be another bottle. Yeah. You, you live. Sure, You sure. live. You consume. <laughs> you keep moving. Keep moving, <laughs> Philip. Thank you very much. Um, Absolutely. Oh, people want to follow you on Instagram. Uh, yeah. Uh, Philip Franklin Lee is mine. And then we have Sushi by Scratch Restaurants, which is all of our sushi bars. Um, Pasta Bar, Austin, 
and Pasta Bar uh, LA. Does all Instagram, everything else? Yeah. Facebook? I don't think we're on. We might be on Facebook. I okay. don't know. Eh, figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out, folks. Follow right. me and you'll find it. I'll post about it, okay. I'm sure. All right. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you. Bye, everybody.